Hey, this is Ken Art of Wake Up Carolina. Because we're in such demand, we decided to do a podcast. Well, actually, it's like an archive of a previously broadcast show on the radio. So it's not a podcast. Well, it is presented as a podcast. So invite people to join us for whatever it is you just said they can join us for. That's right. Enjoy, and it starts now. Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, March the 3rd, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Cato. Good morning. Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Everything going well in everyone's world? Yes, sir. Um, I did hear, I, I listened to some ESPN yesterday. You want to give me the update mm-hmm. on Major League Baseball? <laughs> it's all the owner's fault. Hmm. I mean, everything's the owner's fault. Um, I want to be careful here, but I probably won't be because uh, it's early and my brain hadn't completely awakened. Um, so if I make a, uh, a verbal mistake here, I'll blame it on the, um, okay. On the uncertainty. Duly uh, noted. Uh, okay. Fair enough. Um, does ESPN have a problem with white people? <laughs> you did jump right in, didn't you? Well, I mean, it's six Oh five. It's time. <laughs> our, our good Republican friends are up and ready and rolling. Um, I guess I'd have to ask you why, why you ask that. I am always, uh, appreciative of opinion. I mean, it's what we do here. So I certainly respect uh, and appreciate anybody able to articulate their opinion uh, in, in a forceful or not so forceful way. Um, but but ESPN has morphed into something other than um, the entertainment and sports network. I mean, the E's before the S, right? It and, is. And I've had yep. these conversations with you many, many, many times you have. about our, uh, our sports programming. And it's just obvious to me. That there's an agenda other than updating us on what's happening in Major League Baseball or, 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 or you know, the NBA or the NFL or college football. Um, there's a social undercurrent that, that I find deeply offensive. Um, I just turn it. I mean, I'm sorry. I know you're the programming director and um, newsflash behind the scenes. I first get here. I mean, you know, it doesn't take me long to realize I'm the smartest guy in the room, right? No matter what room I'm in. Continue. So I suggest to Rev what he needs to do with that station, mm-hmm. um, and he ponders and he considers, and he comes back and says, um, "I think you might be onto something. You know, maybe there is a um, th- there's a market out there for sports and entertainment. Um, I don't think ESPN was on the air in this market. Right. Can't speak for Sumter and Orangeburg. We weren't there yet. Um, but all of a sudden, we create a, a relationship with ESPN and." I mean, it, it was it was the I mean, it was the gold standard. I mean, there is no doubt about it. It was the eight hundred pound gorilla. We talk about Trump and Obama, you know, being the um the powerful political figures, despite holding office. Um, you know, when college football games start in America, when ESPN tells them to start mm-hmm. college football games in America, if ESPN said, "Hey, Carolina Clemson, you're going to play Wednesday night at eleven o'clock," you know what he, you know what Carolina Clemson would probably do? They probably play Wednesday night at 11 o'clock and you earn some of that influence. I mean, nobody gives you that sort of sway and influence, but, but the moment that Disney got as intimately involved, we, we know Disney to be an activist country. I mean, excuse me, an activist, well, that's kind of a country Disney, their GDP is about as yeah. big as half the countries on Bigger the planet, countries. but we know that Disney, you know, is, is an activist company. They've proven that in some of their, um, some of their social standards or some of their, some of their social announcements and pronouncements, but ESPN's different today, and maybe maybe I'm a paranoid 58-year-old white guy. I don't think I am, but maybe I am. Um, maybe I need to check my uh, you know ego and, and accountability at the door. But, but it just seems to me that when I turn the radio on ESPN, um, 
it's always there's there's always some racial issue. And yesterday they were talking about the uh, the Major League Baseball lockout, and they had a couple of um, African American hosts on. And uh, I know they're African Americans. They told their name. I didn't assume anything by the way someone speaks because that's deeply offensive to Americans today. Um, uh, I'm a, I'm a rural white guy. Uh, you would have never imagined that, would you? I mean, I'm deeply offended if you speculated that I'm a rural white guy from the South. Um, I'm really not, because uh, I am. So, so there's a couple of um, there's a couple of voices on the radio yesterday, and they are you know articulating their opinions on what they believe is wrong with baseball, what needs to happen in baseball, and one of the personalities, because I Google real quick, and one's an African American, the other's an African American, that they've obviously risen in their profession to a place where they're on a, a national network. They're in the uh, kind of mid-afternoon part of the day. Um, but but one basically said, I didn't write it down, don't have the um the transcript, but one basically said the problem with baseball is a lot of the players are Latinos and blacks and all the owners are white. There's no way a white owner could be fair with, with an African-American or Hispanic player or a Latino player. Uh, let's say this, a minority player. There you go. That's a good word because there's a lot of groupings there. Um, and it was so offensive to me in the, uh, the the uninformed way this person was making these pronouncements. And if the script had been flipped, I got to believe Disney would have had a cow. I got to believe ESPN would have said, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't do that. You can't go that far. I mean, I understand provocateur. I mean, we do some of that here. I understand trying to gin up a conversation. Uh, we do some of that here. Um, some people believe that at times I say some of that things that, that maybe I believe, maybe I don't, but to see if it'll generate, you know, a consistent conversation. That's kind of my job. I mean, I, I may take a thesis I believe in and expound upon that thesis, and I may embellish a touch to see if we can generate some sort of response. I may uh, provoke a little more than needed to see if we can generate some sort of response. Um, but this person went on and on and on. And I've told you, I think I, I told you a year ago, I said, Rev, something's happened at ESPN. I don't know what it is. They, they, they feel like they're not in the sports business any longer. They're in the equality and diversity business. They're in the uh, inclusion business. And they're just, you know, I'm at the locker room. Told you a couple of days ago, yesterday, uh, two days ago, CNBC was on the television. Yesterday, ESPN's on the television. And I sit there for about, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes. And I'm answering some emails and I'm doing some other things this late afternoon. And um, and I'm watching somebody had the TV. I didn't turn the TV. Somebody had it on ESPN. And um, one, two, three, four, five media personalities, uh, nary a single white person. I'm not offended by that. I'm not bothered by that. But but is it, something happening here that we need to be paying uh, attention to? Uh, in the, as, as Disney ordered ESPN to make sure um, they make diversity and inclusion more important than they do sports and entertainment. And there is a bit, uh, you know, kind of a, a boogeyman out there. And it's the, um, it's the white male. I was thinking about this the other day, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this. Um, how many spokespeople now, how many of the major marketers, how many of the major companies in America have as their spokesperson, a conservative white male? Well, when you really think about the commercials, uh, it, it's, uh, it's it's gay and lesbian, African American, right. Hispanic. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not bothered by Pretty that. Pretty rare. You know, I, I joke around with my white friends and my white male friends. I say we got a hell of a run, but it's over. 
You know, I mean, we, we kind of, you know, we, we caught all the breaks and we ran all the businesses. And maybe that's a hang up that I've got to address and deal with. But the world is fundamentally different today. And is I, I wonder whether it's based on merit or not. Joe Biden said of his Supreme Court nominee, she is one of the um, one of the brightest legal minds in America. Based on what? I mean, is, is, is Kavanaugh one of the brightest legal minds? But I would argue that they're, they're, you know, if you're going to pick Supreme Court nominees based on, you know, whether they are indeed the brightest legal minds out there, nobody on the court would probably be on the court. Um, they're, they're, you know, are they conservative? Are they liberal? Do we have enough women on the court? Do we not have enough Catholics? Don't we have three Catholics on the court? That's too many Catholics. Let's do away with a Catholic. You know, let's replace a Catholic because we've got too many. Despite their ability to discern and understand the law and apply the law, um, we don't need three Catholics. We need another. Um, we need how many Southerners are on the U.S. Supreme Court? I mean, let's ask ourselves that: How many Southerners are on the U.S. Supreme Court? When's the last time you had a justice say y'all? I wonder if Joe Biden would say Clarence Thomas is one of the brightest legal minds in America. Of course he wouldn't. Oh, remember how hard he fought against him? Yeah, sure I do. As a senator? I'm so, called him Uncle Tom. Yeah. I mean, he was a placeholder. You know, he, he was a, anyway, maybe maybe I'm making too much about anything, but the, the conversation yesterday. I thought ESPN, uh, I had read some articles uh, a couple of years ago that they had realized they went a little too far into politics because they, they, well, they somebody did. Didn't, somebody didn't tell the host. <laughs> right. And they, and he, and he never they were supposed said, to refocus, you know, he, back to sports. But you're saying, I guess, they well, I mean, haven't. No, they're talking sports. I mean, one of the biggest stories in the sports world today is the lockout, right? I mean, Major League Baseball. It's the has biggest. A, you know, is, 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 well, I mean, <laughs> for baseball fans. To, to me. Well, I mean, but but you would agree baseball's in decline. I mean, there's no arguing that. I mean, when you look they're at the, not helping things. The average baseball fan in America is 57 years old. I mean, the number of fans they have under the age of 30, Major League Baseball, when you go to a stadium in Major League Baseball, you many people are there under the age of 30 that aren't being made to go. And by made to go, I mean a kid going with his father and mother, and it's a, it's a trip, it's a family trip, uh, about 6%. I mean, there are a lot of data out there about Major League Baseball. They know they've got a problem. They understand clearly that uh, we are kind of a, um, a fast-paced, instant gratification society. Baseball is just not that kind of game. I mean, baseball is a methodical slog. The game of baseball is really played between pitches. I mean, when you think about it, that's when my boys played. I always told them, you can't wait till the pitch is made to start thinking about what you're going to do. I mean, you've already got to think about what you're doing. You're pitching him outside, inside. Is he a pull hitter? Is he a spray hitter? Can he run? Can he not run? Is he left-handed? Is he right-handed? I mean, all those things are taken into account between pitches. Um, and, and we live in this society that, that we, we want to move a million miles an hour, and we want everything to move at that speed as well. And the NFL's kind of adopted that. The NBA's like that. College football has changed uh, some of the realities. Uh, made, uh, excuse me, um, the shot clock in college basketball. Remember the Phil Ford, Dean Smith days? The four corners? I'm dating myself here now. But um, games went up 17 to 15, and out of that came a shot clock. I mean, people like young people in particular, they want to move. I mean, they want to roll. They want things to happen quickly. And baseball's just not their cup of tea. I don't know what baseball can do to address it. I mean, what do you do? Make a guy, hey, you only got eight seconds to throw the pitch. I mean, I think they got a pitch clock. They've tried this. They talked about some that. Of the, uh, well, some of the minor leagues, they've tried. You know, it's kind of pilot programs. They, they put a, a pitch clock. You know, the, the guy has 12 seconds to throw the ball again. 
You know, you got to situate yourself. You know, baseball players situate themselves. You know, the pitcher's got to situate himself. The batter's got to situate himself. And anyway, but but I want to go back to ESPN. Then we'll take our break and come back and delve into politics. Um, it takes a lot to offend me. It takes a lot to make me say, whoa, wow. But but I did yesterday because this personality on ESPN what was basically saying that, you know, if we didn't have as many rich white owners, they wouldn't be as unfair as rich white owners seem to be. And it's collective bargaining and it's 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 uh it's, it's taxes. I mean there's luxury taxes issue. It's it's small market, big market. I mean there there's an absolute uh, legitimate conversation to be had about what's fair. Um they're arguing over money. Imagine that. Um billionaires and millionaires arguing over money. The millionaires think the billionaires have too much. The billionaires think they're giving the millionaires plenty of compensation for the um for the added the value add they bring uh, to the sports economy. But but the guy at ESPN did not look at it that way. I mean he had no interest in collective bargaining. He had no interest in luxury tax. He had no interest in Kansas City versus the New York Yankees. You know some of these markets and the disparity of the size of the market and the uh, the money. I mean, if, if the Yankees wanted to buy a championship, they're far more capable of doing it than the Kansas City Royals, right? So the owners are saying in the in the name of a competitive league, I mean, who wants to watch the Dodgers play the Yankees every single year? So they're looking after the parity in the sport. Why does Major League, excuse me, why does the NFL allow the, uh, the worst team to draft first? Because they believe it's good for the game. Might not be good for the Green Bay Packers. You know, or some of the better teams in football, or the L.A. Rams are Super Bowl champions, they'll draft last in this upcoming NFL draft. So the owners are looking at a, they own a baseball team that is a part of Major League Baseball. What is good for that team? What's good for that team is what is good for Major League Baseball, right? I mean, a high tide raises all ships. That's kind of the, um, I don't know, the, the analogy they're using, but the ESPN sports personality, who you would expect to better understand some of these issues, I mean, he can have an opinion on luxury tax. I mean, there are a lot of different opinions out there on a luxury tax. There are a lot of different opinions about collective bargaining. There are a lot of different opinions about, you know, the size of the markets and what it uh, what is fair to the Yankees. I mean, the Yankees can't help it because they're in New York. The Dodgers can't help it because they're in L.A. I mean, they've got some of those big advantages. But Major League Baseball tries to address those in making sure the Kansas City Royals don't go 500 years without playing a postseason baseball game. I mean, that's not good for baseball. But the guy on ESPN yesterday had zero interest in that. Every ounce of energy and fortitude he had was devoted to convincing his listeners that the reason we ain't having baseball games is rich owners, rich white owners, who want to take advantage of their minority employees. That's just an absurdity. There may be some cases of which is true. But, but I mean, you would expect them to do a little better if they are the gold standard in covering Sports. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. So the United Nations General Assembly took a vote yesterday. For what it's worth, the United Nations General Assembly, 141 of 193 countries, voted in favor of condemnation at uh, Russia invading Ukraine. Now, once again, that's a resolution. That doesn't stop anybody from dying. Doesn't stop any missiles from being launched. Doesn't stop Ukraine from being attacked in another city from another front. Um, North Korea, Syria, Belarus, Russia all voted against uh, the uh, the proclamation from the United Nation. Um, 
China abstained. China abstained from uh, participating in the uh, in the UN resolution, and and I want to get probably more philosophical than I'm capable of and go down a road that I probably don't have the the understanding to go down. But it's obvious to me that we're at a crossroads in the Western world. And and I'm an America firster, but I think I've got to evolve into a Westerner and understanding that there are countries around this world that share my belief in God-given unalienable rights. I don't think they're as exceptional as America. I don't think, I mean, obviously they're not as prosperous as America. Well, who knows? I mean, we've got 30 trillion in debt. How are you a prosperous nation when you run up a tab? I'm such as that. But there's never been uh, a nation in the world that celebrated human capital like America has. I mean, I think we can agree to that. We got a lot of things. We got a lot of problems. Got a lot of issues. Um, I think we're heading off into the abyss if we don't quickly change course. Um, the trillions of dollars of debt, the the federal government intervening. I mean, there are a lot of things I don't like about that. But but as um as Todd Ellis famously said and got chastised and really ended up eating those words about you know uh, we ain't Clemson. Remember that? Oh, and yeah. they, they, you know, that was a fun that. time to say that because yeah. they were beating Clemson in football, yep. something they never, never, ever done before. So, I mean, when I say, hey, you know, we, we I mean, I think Todd said we may not be LSU, we may not be Alabama, but we ain't Clemson. And they came back to eat those words. Um, and Dabo got the laugh, laugh, last laugh, um, far away. But, but when I look at America, we're not, we're not England, we're not Italy, we're not France, we're not Germany, we're not, um, Greece, we're not, um, we're not trying to be any of those countries, but we do share a sense of value. We do share a sense of um, celebrating human capital and, and liberating mankind. Um, I think we do it better than they do it, but they do it. China and Russia have chosen a path that will eventually force us to make a decision. And then here's where I get probably more philosophical than, I, than I'm capable of because it's probably unbelievably complicated. But at some point in time, sooner than later, the Western world will have to decide, America as its leader, whether we're going to continue to do business with China and Russia. I mean, I'm convinced of that. Now, now once again, what, 700,000 barrels of oil that we're purchasing from Russia today? So while we're condemning Russia, while we're chastising Putin, while we're strategizing with the Western world in conjunction with Ukraine and the United Nations and NATO, we're, we're sending money to Russia for some of their um, oil. I mean, that, that's very um, contradictory, but it's where we are today. Now, I don't have any idea how we got ourselves in that position. I'm not going to stand here and profess to know with clarity how we got ourselves to a place where we vote to condemn the actions of a, an aggressive nation toward another, but we're still sending money. In, in other words, the moment a bomb drops in Kiev, there may have been a wire transfer from America to Russia for oil. That's, that's kind of a weird dynamic. That's a complicated uh, place to be. But we've got to begin figuring out a way to end those sorts of transactions. If, if China and Russia are choosing to be that antagonistic toward the Western world, we have no choice but to accept and embrace that challenge. Because that's all it is, guys. It's a challenge. We've got to figure out a way 
I mean, uh, Biden's talking about 10 years to no green, I mean, 10 years to no fossil fuels. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. Well, it's yeah, 10 years, 20, 30, about 13 years, 13 years. Um, I believe the future is renewables. I think people like Elon Musk are so innovative, so entrepreneurial that we will eventually get to a place where we don't burn as much fossil fuel. And I think zero emissions is a pipe dream. It's a farce. It's crazy to believe that we can get there. But I was thinking about this the other day, uh, yesterday, actually. If my television blew up this morning in in my master bedroom, I'm going to get me another television. But if there were this unknown technology or this technology that was cutting edge and it wasn't on the market yet called high definition, I mean, I'm going back a bit. And, and the high-definition television was going to be for sale at Best Buy by the end of March. You know what I'd probably do? I'd wait. But if the high-definition television was going to be the end of March 2025, I'd buy me another analog television, right? I mean, I'd buy me another TV. i got to kind of plug that gap. Well, I think eventually, hopefully, we'll get to a, a place of innovation that we don't depend on fossil fuels as much as we do today. But but it's 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 a long time away. I mean, there's a great length of time for us to address our energy needs as we innovate, as we allow the Elon Musk of the world and some of these other brilliant thinkers and entrepreneurial spirits, as we allow them to address some of the issues of energy. You, you don't flip a switch and say out with the old, yeah. in with the. Should new. we hurt no. ourselves in the meantime? Well, I mean, that's exactly what we're doing. We're, we're prohibiting um, our ability to tell Russia where to go and tell China. So so what we've got to do, and it's not just America, Rev, the Western culture, the Western world has to make its mind up this morning that we're going to burn less Russian energy tomorrow than we do today, and we're going to buy things that China manufactures in fewer quantities tomorrow than we do today. Do we get off, do we wean ourselves off Russian oil and Chinese manufacturing by Friday at five? Of course not. Absolutely not. But let's seriously consider strategizing on how to decouple ourselves from Chinese manufacturing and Russian oil, Russian energy production. Russia and China are choosing isolation. Let's teach them a lesson at what isolation really feels like. There are not enough consumers in China. The economy, I mean, it's, it's a big economy. It's a growing economy, one and a half billion people. But it's not, a, it's not a, a, an economy that can sustain itself if the Western world chooses to not buy goods from China. So China abstains from a vote in favor of Russia aggression and advancement. And we're going to continue to unload uh, containers, ships and containers at the LAX harbors or the West Coast harbors and the East Coast harbors with what? With product made in China. We're, we're, I don't, I don't want to say we're hypocritical because it's complicated. It's a very complex problem to have. But as we pursue energy independence, we need to simultaneously pursue manufacturing independence. We need to make a deal with people in the world who have a similar uh, quality in valuing human capital. Finland's no, I mean, Finland will never do it exactly like we do it. We'll never do it exactly like Germany does it. But, but we're in the same ballpark. We're talking baseball a second ago. We may be on first base. They may be on third base. Russia and China have basically agreed that isolation is okay with them. But why not be isolated 
If the people you're isolating yourself from continue to send money to your country to buy things you're manufacturing and energy you're producing, we have to make a very serious calculus. Now, now once again, I don't have the intellectual horsepower to sort that out. I can't begin to fathom how complicated that could eventually be. But that's where we must start. And today is the Western world, and we are the leader of the Western world. We must pursue policy that decouples us from Chinese manufacturing and Russia energy production because those two countries have chosen isolation. They don't celebrate human exceptionalism. They don't liberate human capital. They don't value human life and treasure as we do. And we continue to depend on them for two of the most important ingredients to keep our economy going, energy and manufacturing. Now, now we can discuss and we can, we can get real frustrated and bothered and aggravated by previous policy and previous, previous treaty and agreements corporate America's made with, with cheap manufacturing. I mean, you know, that doesn't help us any. We got to be visionary, look forward. How do we today begin the process of not depending on China nor Russia for manufacturing or energy production? That needs to be. I mean, I'm a Republican. That's what some Republican needs to say loudly and clearly this morning and create a movement that, that begins to address that issue of these countries who have chosen their fate and course, and they're doing it publicly. I mean, an aggressor attacks a much smaller sovereign nation, and China abstains. That's all you need to know. They're on the record. They don't want any part of condemning Vladimir Putin or Russia. Why? Because they have a similar perspective on the way they govern themselves. And I thought we had kind of learned our lesson as it relates to, say, medicines coming from China back at the beginning of the pandemic. Don't you remember? Yeah. We had that discussion and we said, oh, why, why, why are they manufacturing all of our antibiotics? But, but there's a difference in buildings being blown up, blown up and people, True. innocent people being killed. Yep. I mean, you got to, okay, this is a pretty extreme example of what Russia and China are willing to do to get their way. And I remember when Putin and Xi met a few months ago, I thought, uh-oh, that's not good. Well, but, 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 but it could not be as bad. I mean, in other words, if we had gotten serious about manufacturing and energy production, and Trump was, I mean, let's give Trump credit, like the guy or not, two things that he clearly understood it's bad to be dependent on Russia. It's bad to be dependent on, on China. Now, Trump never offered up much of a, a thoughtful response. You know, what do we do about it? That's where I'm going. I think you agree. I think Cato agrees. I, I know I agree. It's, it's not good to depend on China. It's not good to depend on Russia. I think most Americans agree with that. Here's the second part of that. What do we do about it? That's where it gets incredibly, incredibly complicated. But we've got some smart people in this country. We got some very capable minds in this country. Let's get to work. Well, let me, let's let's get to work on that. I mean, let's get yep. to work on that. Let's figure out a way. I mean, m maybe this feeble they, attempt they at radio breaks. The other night, do what now? I said the smart people weren't on TV the other night in the State of the Union. Well, you know, <laughs> looking for them. Let's go to the phone. Somebody there? Yep. Okay. Dale in Florence. Hey, Dale. Hey guys, and can I'm going to talk about part of what you're talking about? Thank you so much for playing that Kamala Harris clip yesterday. You know, Democrats, and especially you African-Americans, your party thinks you're a moron. They talk to you like you're about six months old. You know that? Um, you know, Kamala talking 
like there. She's and my wife had heard it, and she didn't know the context. She thought she was talking to third graders. Black folks, your party thinks that you're too stupid to go find an ID card somewhere to go get an ID. They think you're too dumb to to get a job and to make your own money and and, and to, to to vote your own mind. Democrats, your your president is telling you that it's the Republicans that want to defund the police after everything we went through with that. Our your president's telling you that you're paying a high price for gas because of the Republicans or for because of the Ukrainians or the Russians or whoever except for themselves where the blame goes. And, Ken, you're talking about having to make the serious people, you're talking about unserious people having to make serious decisions, and they won't even concede that their own constituency is intelligent. They're going to do whatever's going to line their pockets, and that's all they're really looking at. I mean, yeah, we all forgot about Hunter Biden in, in China and in, in, in Ukraine and Russia and and how that affects Joe's thought processes. Yeah, we, we all forgot about that stuff. I, I don't see any kind of serious decisions coming out of these people, guys. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. When you look at the um, the movement that is America First and you look at a significant accomplishment, I mean, it, to me, it's been raising the awareness of how dependent we become on people that don't have our best interest at heart. I mean, I think, you know, philosophically and theoretically, that's where, uh, I mean, Trump's not a theorist, nor is he a, um, a philosopher. But, but I think his, I mean, the, the rambunctious nature of which he delivered the message probably prohibited the message from being taken as seriously as it deserved to be. I mean, that, that's Trump. I mean, how many of us have said that? That's Trump. You know how Trump is. I mean, that's just Trump. But but he said, in a, in a very Queens-like way, <laughs> or a New Yorker sort of way, exactly what I'm trying to articulate this morning, the, 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 the movement that is America First, if the history books give a proper accounting and an accurate accounting and a fair accounting of America First at some point in time in American history, let, let's say 50 or 100 years from now, somebody's talking about America First. Remember when that Trump guy got elected? And he started this America First movement. Yeah, that's what led to a renaissance in American manufacturing. That's what led to a renaissance in American energy production. That's what led to the Western world weaning itself off Russian energy and Chinese manufacturing. That would be, I mean, if history accounts us that way, one of the most successful political movements in the history of mankind. It saved the country. Hey, two words. China abstained. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Who needs to be in the room when we're trying to address these policies? Once again, how many of you agree? I mean, maybe I'm the only one that feels this way. How many of you sense a different degree of urgency now that Russia has invaded Ukraine? I mean, is it different? Is it? Is it? Do you feel a little bit more motivated? I mean, we've always felt Russia, I mean, nobody in America believes that Russia's our friend. I mean, if you do, you're naive, you're a fool, you're, you just don't keep up, or you drink bad. Um, but, but you know, when, when they're over there doing their thing, yeah, they're providing the Western world with a bunch of its oil, and yes, that could be problematic at some point in time, but, but really and truly, some of those are human rights issues, uh, the Russian people have to work that out. You know, Eastern Europe has always had those prevailing issues, and they've got to figure out a way to 
to decide what it's uh, what is acceptable and what it's not. But all of a sudden, is there's there's an old saying: uh, everything changes when the bullets start flying. And once the bullets started flying, do we feel fundamentally different about maybe not our obligation to Ukraine and Russia, but the realities of how dependent we become on for our livelihoods? Our way of life is. I mean, we don't facilitate our way of life. I mean, go to the ports. Look at how many containers are coming from China. Uh, ch- check out your energy suppliers and see how much is coming from places that don't care much for us. So, so, so once again, on a sheet of paper, those words look very appealing and attractive. But when the bullets start flying, to me, it, th- there's a sense of urgency I have today that, that I normally probably would not have had. Well, and, and I kind of look at it through the lens of the pipeline and energy independence. And, you know, obviously ever since uh, Biden got sworn in and, and started his uh, hostile attack on fossil fuels, you know, I didn't understand it, didn't agree with it. But, I mean, this brings, you know, life and death reality to those type of decisions. And I guess that that's why I, I, if you say urgency or, you know, a focus on the issue, I mean, that's that's where I see. That's how I see it. But, I mean, if... if, if- that makes any sense. Well, it sure does. It makes a lot of sense. And, and life is leverage. I mean, wouldn't you agree to that? I mean, we all have um, times we have a lot of leverage, times we don't have a lot of leverage. Wouldn't you agree that a lot of America's um, resistance has been, we get a lot of energy from there. We get a lot of our manufacturing from there. Um, when we hear so, some of the human atrocities that happen in China, I mean, I think all Americans are offended by that, I mean, all fair-minded Americans, all God-fearing and, and freedom or liberty-loving Americans are going like, wow, man, I mean, shouldn't we do something about that? I mean, isn't it somewhat of a, uh, an obligation, uh, you know, a humanistic obligation we have to make sure human atrocities like that are at least kept in check? I mean, which much is blessed, much is expected? I mean, do we believe that or not? I mean, I think we have to believe that. But, but I think your, your roles and responsibilities are a lot different if, you got to, I don't know, balance that with some leverage you don't have of the agreement. And China knows this. I mean, China and Russia both know how well, I mean, they're, they're both aware of how we have forsaken. Uh, you talking about a second ago, but I'm not blaming this on Biden. I think that's unfair to blame Joe Biden. We've had 50 years of terrible energy policy. I mean, we bought Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran and, and Kuwait. Sure I mean, didn't help things. What, I mean, we, no, he didn't help at all. But I mean, I think it's unfair. I mean, I think it's dishonest to blame Joe Biden for the situation we're in today. I mean, Fox News does, and CNN runs cover for him because that's kind of the nature of their business now. You know, uh, one's terrible, the other's is the, the, the greatest supreme leader in the history of mankind. We've had horrible energy policy for 50 years. We've had a dependency. You know the first voice I heard that made any sense about all of this? Boone Pickens. Remember the Pickens plan? I may try to Google that during the break. Uh, Boone Pickens basically said that, you know, you better not ever trust China and Russia, and you better not trust these Middle Eastern countries because eventually they'll stab you in the back. And Pickens, I mean, and there's no doubt Pickens was a, a motivated business guy. And, I mean, if you ever saw one of the hearings, he, I mean, he appeared before the Senate, uh, some committee that, that addresses energy exploration and, and, you know, where we get our energy from. And Dianne Feinstein was very insulting toward Boone Pickens. And, um, you know, aren't you in the energy business? He said, ma'am, yes, I'm, I'm very much in the energy business. Um, and I have a, you know, profit motivation. I don't make any bones about that. But your energy policy sucks. Whether I make money or not, we're not doing right by the American people and depending on countries that, for whatever reason, despise and hate our guts for the, 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 the one thing that could stall our commerce. 
I mean, we can do without hamburgers. We can do without hot dogs. If we don't have any hot dogs, we'll eat hamburgers. Don't eat the hamburgers, we'll eat hot dogs. We can honestly do without, you know, the nicest luxury SUV. We can do without polo shirts. We can do without Starbucks coffee. We can do without, well, we know we can't, peanut patch bowl peanuts, but we can't do without those. Nope. No way in the world. <laughs> um, but we can't do without energy. I mean, we just simply cannot run the world's largest economy without, you know, dependable and affordable energy. So why not address that? I mean, if we know the economy is predicated on, or the success and growth and prosperity of the economy is predicated on whether we can power that economy or not, how in the world did we get ourselves to a place where we're dependent on Russia and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and Iraq and Iran? Well, they've got all the, all the oil, Ken. No, they don't. They absolutely don't. We are a nation blessed with abundant natural resources. We've just chosen to not allow American entrepreneurs to extract that energy, to produce that energy, to put that energy on the market. And let's see what the market dictates when it comes to supply and demand. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Hey, Joe in Hartsville. Have about a minute here. All right, real quick. Um, our energy policy. Uh, I'll try and explain it like Kamala Harris real quick. We, we're still buying five, 600,000 barrels a day from uh, Russia, and we buy from Iran. I've got a brand-new Ford F-150. I got two guys down the block that hate my guts because they got these old raggedy cars. I parked my F-150 because I want to buy an electric car, but I got to save up for 15 years to get it, but I'm not going to drive it. So I walk down the block and ask them to give me a ride to town every day. That's how stupid our policy is. That's a good analogy. Thank you, Joe. That's a good example. That's absolutely. I mean, we have an ample resource available. We're the largest economy in the world, the biggest consumer of energy in the world. We have the capacity to produce enough energy. We just choose not to. Is it that simple? Probably not. Is it as complicated as, as many, you know, uh, national and world leaders can try to convince you? Absolutely not. Back in a minute. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial member FINRA SIPC. This morning's edition of the Armstrong Minute is brought to you by the Armstrong Wealth Management Group, dedicated to growing and protecting your wealth. It is Thursday morning. Reggie Armstrong is with us. Reggie and I normally share an email during the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, about the topics we're going to discuss. We've yep. not shared an email this week because I don't know where to start. <laughs> I, mean, I, I really and truly don't know where to begin. Yeah. I mean, we normally got a, a, a not not a it's not always stable, right. but but it's normally somewhat stable and somewhat mm-hmm. predictable. And yeah. and the issues at hand are not war and and mm-hmm. you know and 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 energy and all these other sorts of things. But but Reggie, it would seem natural to me. I know what you're going to say. Don't do it. But it would seem natural for people to panic. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that would be the emotional right. response you would expect from, from people to panic. Mm-hmm. But, but in all honesty, mm-hmm. it is the best advice. You, however cliche it right. may sound, right. it is indeed the best. Of, and I know that's what you're going to say, right. and I agree with that. But, but I mean, we'll get to the geopolitics. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I think this is a, a kind of a different segment it, you and I are going to yeah. do today because the world's in turmoil. That's right. The markets that's right. are in turmoil. That's right. Um, 
What do you make of it? And then we'll kind of sure. go step by step. What what should people plan sure. to do? Sure. So I think if we leave the panic aside for a moment, because, you know, you've got some people are looking at this. Well, maybe there's going to be some bargains out there and others are like, you know, I, it's time to protect what I have. But I think a, a bigger thing to to kind of step back and look at is how has the the the, the volatility of the markets changed? Because during bull markets, volatility as measured by, I don't want to get too wonky here, but it's by what's called standard deviation. It tends to be most of the time, you know, what's called a standard deviation of 16 or lower. And, and that just means that markets, when the markets are trending up over long periods of time, like they have the last 10 years, except for, you know, one-time events like, you know, the COVID pandemic uh, reaction, all that. The markets tend to be pretty calm about things. They they don't, you know, the the up and down moves are quarter of a percent, half a percent. They're not one, two, three percent a day. And then in 08 events, when you get into bear market times, the volatility picks up a lot. You you, you know, in other words, the moves start to get, you know, seventy percent of the time in a bear market, the moves are above that standard deviation of sixteen. And so it, it's worth at least sitting back and recognizing that so far this year, the volatility has picked up. There's some questions on on where the status of the economy is. Uh, according to the Atlanta Fed as of yesterday, I believe, or day before yesterday, the projected uh, uh, GDP for the first quarter is 0.0. So there's growth questions. I mean, was that an Omicron temporary thing? We don't know. Um, some earnings have been suspect. Under the, under the water, Ken, uh, yeah, the S&P's down not quite 10% now or right around the 10%, but the growth it, part of that market, the, the Google's, Microsoft's, you know, all the growthy companies, not just tech, uh, some of them gotten hammered. I mean, Netflix dropped by 50% at one point. I mean, so, so there's been sort of a bear market under the water in small cap growth and large cap. And again, maybe it's just a bargain opportunity, but then you add on top of that the volatility with commodities, obviously to the upside right now with commodities just exploding through the roof, energy stocks and so forth. And you then you add on top of that the volatility caused by Russians invading Ukraine. Um, it's just worth understanding that, as, as, that the markets are fairly different now. Now, March is normally a great month for stocks. And the market is a little bit manic depressive right now. If you notice, two days ago, uh, the market drops 500 points. Uh, bonds go, you know, 20 year treasuries rocket up two, 3% over a couple of days. And then yesterday the market, you know, do, do, does well. And, and, you know, the markets will go up five, 700 points in a day. And then, and, and then bonds will lose one, two, 3% in a day. That kind of manic depressive market is also indicative of, 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 of turmoil. But this Russia Ukraine situation will get resolved at some point. And March is typically a good month. So people that need to be a little cautious about panicking, as you, as you said, I would say. But at the same time, um, has the tenor of the market changed? Are we, are we in the middle of a bear market? You know, the early stages, rather. Or are we simply at the pause that refreshes? We just don't know it because we're, it, we're, we're too close to the, to the trees. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Well, let me ask you this. And I'd, I'd be very interested in your opinion on this. I'm of the opinion that the the Fed mm -hmm. and some of the controlling elements of the of the economy refuse to let cycles take place. Mm -hmm. uh, the the reality is the market has always corrected itself. Yep. We've always had recessions. Mm -hmm. Occasionally we have a depression. We've always had sell-offs mm -hmm. and buying opportunities. Right, right. But it seems to me 
um, that there are a lot of forces that don't want that to happen any longer. Am I paranoid about that? And what are the dangers, yeah. if I'm right, that yeah, that, no. that the, the Fed? I mean, I'll use Jerome yeah. Powell as yeah, an sure. example. Yeah. Um, I heard somebody from, uh, might have been, uh, might have been J.P. Morgan, mm-hmm. one of these investment managers mm-hmm. or asset managers mm-hmm. said, you know, the Fed's balance sheet needs to go from 9 trillion to 11 trillion. We've got to stop this from happening. Mm-hmm. We can't allow. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what's the danger of those sorts of things prevailing? Uh, so first of all, I, I, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Okay, that's the first thing to understand. Okay, uh, and, and I, but I don't believe you're paranoid, Ken. It's uh, I I do believe they they want to 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 monkey with the system and not allow these natural cycles to happen. I'm a I'm an Adam Smith free market capitalist, where just enough regulation to keep things from blowing up and to keeping the poorest of the poor from getting run over. Getting you know, uh, but other than that. You know, when you suppress the natural markets, uh, you cause lots of problems. Price controls basically cause either, for example, as an example, price controls cause either inflation or scarcity of goods. Okay, so that we know that doesn't work. Every time socialist communists have tried it, doesn't work. When Nixon tried it, didn't work. Okay, um, on this side, on the market side. You, you mess around with the markets. Oh, we're going to do this. We're going to flood it with money. We're going to raise our balance sheets. You disrupt things. The eventual result, obviously, I don't know. It's one man's opinion. But I believe the reckoning becomes that much worse. We have, we, see, we had, in 2000, we had a dot-com bubble, a technology bubble. But, you know, you could have bought some stocks back then, AT&T. Well, not AT&T, but maybe uh, Exxon or, uh, and uh, and um Philip Morris, as an example, and done fine in 2000 bear market. You know, you could have bought commodities and done okay in, in, the, in that 2000 market. In 2008, we had a housing bubble, but everything went down the, the bleep, you know. And so it was, you know, it was a, um, a, you know, it was just a panic. But today, in my opinion, it's an everything bubble. We, it's very hard to find things that were cheap. In fact, two years ago, the only area that you could have said was relatively inexpensive in the markets was commodities. Well, now that's been erased. Now commodities are... Fairly priced. In fact, as of com- as of this morning, uh, the commodity index, the Bloomberg Commodity Index, is bumping up against some resistance that would suggest a pullback. But you know, extremes can continue. So, I agree with you. I just think that the reckoning and the reckoning may end up making the 08 financial crisis seem like uh, you know, like like party time. I mean, it's that's that's the scary thing that is a possibility. Okay, and how do we prepare for that? I mean, if, yeah. if that if it, you, you're saying we're not paranoid, yeah. we're being realistic, and that's 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 mm-hmm. on the table. Yeah, I mean, it may be it may be option D, but it's still yeah. on the table. Yeah. Um, as a financial planner, a wealth mm-hmm. manager, someone who helps people navigate these complexities, mm-hmm. h- how do we? I don't want to say how do we prepare because I don't know how yeah. you can prepare right. for that. But how do you adjust? Right to 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 put that option or that alternative on the table. Sure. Uh, so. A number of years ago, I, I was at a conference in, in Seattle before it went all goofy out there uh, with uh, with Nassim Taleb, the, the the author of The Black Swan. You know, this was this was you know maybe five six years ago, and one of the things he was asked a question during our meeting, and he and he was asked, "What do you own?" I mean, you're Mister, you know, running a hedge fund, so smart. What do you own? He says, "Well, I own a little bit of gold, but I don't like it. I own some euros. I don't like them. I own some dollars. I don't like them. I own some U.S. stocks. I don't like them. I own some silver. Don't like it." And he went on for like nine, ten, twelve things about what he didn't like, but he still owned them. And he said, "But I own a little bit of all of these things because they're unlikely to all blow up together." 
And that's what we call diversification. Sometimes people think diversification is U.S. stocks and foreign stocks or just U.S. stocks and bonds. Um, so in my opinion, you know, in a, if this was a fair valued market, you stay the course, maybe have a little more cash than normal, be careful. But when you have an overvalued market, there's a lot more fuel to burn is the, the way I look at it. It's like, it's like dry brushing a force, much easier that when something bad gets going, that it could really pile up. So therefore, uh, the downside is probably greater than the upside opportunity, the downside risk versus the, but that doesn't mean you go zero stocks, but it probably means you have an eye towards being a little more cautious than normal. So again, I mentioned this one, two, three weeks ago. Um, you know, if your normal stock exposure in your mind is 60% and, you know, maybe in these times it needs to be 40, you know, or something, you know, and maybe instead of just owning pure bonds, maybe you own some cash, maybe you own some different alternative type investments, which I can't go into. Sure. Maybe you own some commodities, you know, in through an investment of some sort. I mean, be careful about owning, you know, cotton directly. Uh, you might find some in your backyard, but, you know, you can certainly invest in investments that can help you. And, uh, but the diversification is one of the few free lunches out there. Yeah, it's, it can have, it has its own challenges. Sometimes you miss, you know, when the U.S. stocks blow up, go up 100%, you know, 50% in, 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 in three months. If they do that, if you don't have all your money in U.S. stocks, you miss out on that, but you also miss out on the 50% drop. So that's just my thoughts. Okay, last question. Um, now would be a perfect time for a second opinion. Yep. Um, I got to believe that there are a lot of people anxious, nervous, mm -hmm. paranoid yeah. about some of these things <laughs> we talked about. Um, how does that work out? I mean, if someone yeah. is not a client of yours, sure. but but they're, they're, they're a little bit bothered sure. right now about the uncertainty, they want somebody else to look at. Well, uh, Real quick, how does that work? Sure. So we're we're an eight-person team, and we all work on the same set of clients. Three of us are wealth managers. And the beauty of having Lee, Matt, and I together is that even though we work on the same set of clients, we, we look at things, uh, you know, in terms of the benefit of our clients, and we work as a team, we invest as a team. Because we are all very different individually, we also challenge each other. And so... Uh, and what that the way that works out is if someone is interested in potentially becoming a client, they can call us at 843-292-9997 or check us out on the website first, armstrongwealth.com. And what that ends up being, at first there's a phone conversation just to make sure there's at least a potential fit. And then the first meeting is, is, is we call it a discovery session. And that is a no cost, no obligation session where it's kind of like a first date. You get to know us, we get to know you, see your concerns. And if nothing else, you'll get a good second opinion there. But if someone at that point says, well, I want to go further, then perhaps we can actually work on strategies and, and potential solutions for what they have going on in their lives. And that number and website again? 843-292-9997 or armstrongwealth.com. Thank you, Reggie. Appreciate it, Ken. This Thursday's edition of the Armstrong Minute is brought to you by the Armstrong Wealth Management Group at 1807 West Devon Street in Florence. Opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. 843-661-0937 is our number. Phones are... Uh, somebody's there? Yep. Let's go to the phone. Steve in Florence. Hello, Steve. Good morning, guys. <clears throat> Yeah, I'm all for the renewable energy and, you know, maybe in 100 years when the technology gets better, 
But is anybody calling Elon Musk in the meantime? I don't know if he's like the Steve Jobs of it or if he's actually like, you know, inventing it himself. But is anybody giving him a phone call and asking his opinion? Uh, Biden intentionally did not mention Musk at the State of the Union. We know that because Tesla's probably been the greatest example of cutting-edge technology and renewable energy electric car. And um, But Musk has had some very uncomplimentary things to say about Biden uh, via Twitter. And I guess old Joe took it personally. And um, I don't know if they blackballed Elon Musk or not, but, but I, I don't think the administration reaches out to him asking for his opinion. And they shouldn't be up there preaching about it. It's going to happen in 10 years. You got the guy that's leading cutting edge of it, and you don't want to work with him. Yeah. But, I mean, he doesn't say, thank you, Steve. He doesn't say what they want him to say. I mean, Musk says that the, the, the technology that they have is astounding, but it's still nowhere near what is necessary to wean ourselves off fossil fuel. I mean, I think we said in the last week, um, Elon Musk has two business endeavors that captivate uh, human beings. One is Tesla the electric car, and I think most people are pulling for uh, Elon Musk and Tesla, the other SpaceX. Um, so he's building an electric car. At the same time, he's propelling um, rockets into space via fossil fuel. I mean, you don't think if Musk wanted to, he would launch a missile or a, a rocket with uh, electric energy, some sort of solar panel or, you know, battery-powered. No, nah, but he understands the torque that it takes to propel a rocket into outer space, and he knows the technology's not there. Um, it goes back to really, truly, some of the comments we made earlier about who needs to be in the room. That, that may be the biggest problem in America today, guys. I mean, we, we all identify these problems. We're buying too much energy from Russia. I mean, can we agree to that? I mean, at the, at the very same moment, buying any. at the very same moment, a bomb um, tears up a building in Ukraine, there may be a wire transfer from the U.S. to Russia to buy 700,000 or nearly 700,000 barrels of oil that day. Whatever time of day that wiring transaction, that wire transaction takes place, um, that there simultaneously could be a bomb dropped on a building um, in Ukraine at the very same time. And I just think we're to the point as Westerners, and I think America flies the flag higher than any other Western nation. Uh, The Western world takes our lead. We have some disagreements with Western countries. Of course we do. But, but one thing we do is celebrate uh, the liberating of human capital. We believe in unalienable rights. China and Russia do not. So the Western world has to come to grips with, with some measure or mechanism that eventually, not overnight, none of this is easy. All of this is incredibly complicated. But we've got to figure out a way to not be as dependent on Chinese manufacturing and Russian energy. The Western world has to address that collectively. America can't solve all those problems. It's not America's obligation or responsibility to solve all those problems. But I think when you see Russia do what it's done and China abstains and, and, and basically saddles up, I mean, if, if China chose sides, they chose Russia's side against the Western world in this particular. There's obviously an alignment or a partnership. There, there of is some no sort. doubt about it. And, and their leverage is manufacturing and energy. And I think that the consumers of the Western world, by and large, so the West has to look at China and Russia, not as identically the same, but there has to be some implementation of long-term strategy that, that, that forces the Western world to not be as dependent on Chinese manufacturing or Russian energy. Now, now once again, that's a radio show host and a soundbite. This would be unbelievably complicated and ambitious, but it must be on the table. 
We're to the point now that has to be something that, that the Western world aspires to happen at some point in time. Fox News, excuse me, Great Television's senior national editor, formerly White Fox. House correspondent, formerly of Fox. Um, and we got Fox on the television here. John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Ken? We are Happy doing. to you. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. Uh, I, I want to talk. We, we, we talked a lot about Russia and Ukraine over the last several weeks. Um, yeah. I, I got to believe it is the subject at hand in Washington. Um, flyover country looks at it one way. What would you say the mindset of Washington is on this Russia-Ukrainian or the Russia invasion of Ukraine? Well, there's a lot of unity, and you may have seen that yourself. Uh, if you're watching the State of Union address, I was there. And, uh, you know, what you saw in the first 12 minutes of President Biden's speech to Congress uh, was unity. You saw uh, standing ovations that were bipartisan, applause, sustained applause that was bipartisan. I think that uh, this is one of those rare instances where generally, generally, uh, the Republicans and Democrats see eye to eye and backing Ukraine. Uh, and as you put it, you know, backing democracy, uh, backing our way of life uh, and uh, going up against Russia. So I think that that is the general mood here in Washington. And I have a sense that it's it's the same mood uh, on this situation all across the country. No one's talking about committing U.S. boots on the ground in Ukraine, uh, but we're doing all we can to support Ukraine, uh, including the latest request from the Biden administration for $10 billion uh, from Congress to support Ukraine in terms of humanitarian assistance and also more defensive uh, and offensive military weapons to use against Moscow. John, the, the American people appear to be war weary until they yes. see visuals of innocent people being killed, um, countrysides being destroyed. Um, I'm guilty of that. I mean, I, I am a I've turned sure. into a non-interventionist Republican because I feel I've been misled since Vietnam and what was told and, and what actually happened. But we do get involved in these. We, we do get um, committed to some of these things. Um, what, what is the sentiment of Washington? If the, if the American people are war weary, are our politicians, um, do, do our politicians reflect the nature of the people? I think so. I, I think that we are, as a, as a society, war weary. Uh, in fact, former President Trump brought us more in that direction. Uh, no wars uh, occurred during his four years in office. No major, uh, you know, interventions occurred by the U.S. during his four years in office. That being said, you know, when you see aggression like Putin is carrying out against Ukraine, with the threat of that being carried out against other former Soviet republics, that's where you get the world involved. And, you know, where you get even Switzerland uh, siding with Ukraine against Russia, Switzerland, which is historically neutral, that gives you a sense about how this is different than uh, past military uh, situations involving, you know, some world powers. This is very different. Uh, this could change the shape of Europe, and that's, I think, the reason why Switzerland weighed in. Even Sweden, another historically neutral country, weighed in providing military equipment to Ukraine. So th that's why I say that this particular situation is different. And no one, uh, no Democrat, no Republican is talking about committing U.S. troops on the ground to Ukraine. That's a very key ingredient here. Uh, I want to shift gears and go to January 6th. Uh, lawyers okay. for the House panel investigating the January 6th uh, attack on the Capitol have um, – I said in a court filing Wednesday that former President Donald Trump and some of the key allies 
engaged in political crimes during their effort to overturn the election. Most of my listeners don't buy that, uh, that they believe it was a riot. They don't defend it. They condemn it. Um, they wish it had never happened, but they don't believe it was to overturn the election. Um, how does the January 6th commission sell that to the American people? Well, this is a court filing. It's not a, it's not an indictment, for instance, coming from the Department of Justice. Uh, and the reason why they had this filing is because a, a lawyer, a conservative lawyer, is refusing to turn over thousands of emails that the panel has requested related to his role in trying to persuade Vice President Mike Pence to reject electors from states that were won by Joe Biden. Uh, Eastman has cited attorney-client privilege uh, in terms of refusing to turn over those documents. He said he was representing former President Trump at the time. But the committee argues in this filing that this claim of privilege is voided by what's known as the crime-fraud exception uh, to the confidentiality that's usually accorded to attorneys and their clients. Uh, and that holds that a communi- uh, communications uh, can need not be kept confidential if an attorney is found to be assisting their client in the commission of a crime. And that's what the January 6th committee says happened here. This may go all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court at the end of the day uh, in terms of whether or not Eastman has to turn over uh, this these documents that the committee is requesting. John, is the January 6th commission nearing the end of its work, or do we have any idea? I think if you were looking at it as a football game, I think they're in the third quarter, uh, you know, to give you a sense about where they are in terms of wrapping it up. Uh, you know, that they are mindful of the fact that we're nine, nine months away, less than nine months away from the midterm elections. And if Republicans uh, take over the House of Representatives, that committee is kaput. It's over. It's going to be disbanded. So that's the reason why they are in a rush to complete their work uh, sooner rather than later. John, thank you for the report. Have a great week and week, rest of the week and weekend. We will talk next week. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. Have a great day. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you. Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent, John Decker, on the phone with us. Um, speaking of uh, the election, I went back and looked at some of the numbers out of Texas. Um, obviously, they've had an election Tuesday in Texas primary. Um, it, I would consider this a precursor to where we're headed in the midterm elections. Very, very optimistic for Republicans. I mean, let's not count our chickens before they hatch. Um, here's what happened in Texas. And I'll do this in Kamala Harris fashion. Oh, no. Texas is a big old state <laughs> with a lot of voters. <laughs> there you go. Thanks for uh, Kamala, let's take a break. I just said all I know about Texas. <laughs> Texas is a big old state with a lot, a lot of voters. Um, Texas has 245 counties. Of the 245 counties, 182 broke midterm primary election records. Oh, wow. In 2018, the last midterm, 2020 is a presidential cycle, a little bit different there. But in 2018, there were 1.04 million Democrats vote, 1.55 million Republicans voted. In 2022, this past Tuesday, the Democrat number stayed about the same, went from 1.04 to 1.05. The Republican number went from 1.55 to 1.91. 1.9, nearly 2 million people voted in the Republican midterm primary in the state of Texas, and 182 of the 254 counties in that big old state, as Kamala Harris would famously say, <laughs> broke records for GOP turnout. Now, here's the issue. The Trump-endorsed candidate did phenomenally well. 
the conspiracy theory candidate didn't win a single race. Did not win a single race. Those who said everything's a conspiracy. I mean, we're guilty of that. Reggie just said, just because you're paranoid don't mean they're not trying to get you. So, so you know, we talked a lot about, we, we, we've kind of made it a part of our show. You know, um, I need a new conspiracy theory t-shirt because my, all my others uh, have come true. The candidates that went down that road failed miserably. It just kind of shows me the Republican voters say, hey, you got to tell me more than that. Uh, the, the world's not one grand conspiracy. Are the conspiracies within the world? Of course there are. But the Trump-endorsed candidates that toyed around with the notion of conspiracies did just fine. Those who said, vote for me because everything's a conspiracy, not a single one. It was about 30 candidates that ran that kind of campaign. Um, if you elect me, I'm going to Washington to expose every single conspiracy that you can't even imagine is, is being perpetrated against the American public. Those candidates did not win. They did not fare well. Um, the majority of those didn't get in runoffs. Interesting. It also means Trump didn't endorse the extreme conspiracy Bingo. people. Bingo. There, see, you're playing chess now, Rev. <laughs> I am proud of you. Trump <laughs> is smart enough to say, my candidate, if I'm going to endorse a candidate, they need to win. And I don't need to be associated every at every turn with every candidate who basically runs on a conspiracy theory sort of agenda. That the uh, you know the, the conspiracy theory ideology. I'm a conspiracy theorist about half the time, but I'm not one all the time. Glenn Beck's one all the time. I mean, Beck will admit that. Glenn Beck will readily admit. I think everything in the world is a conspiracy. A lot of his came true though. Well, I mean, I think about half mine. Half of the things that come across my, uh, my desk, so to speak, that <laughs> run through my brain, I think are conspiracies. But but you're right, Rev. That that is that that is the takeaway. That somebody in the Trump orbit said, "Hey, Donald, you know your 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 political fate and future lie in the hands of how well we do in the midterms. If you endorse all these conspiracy theory candidates and they and they lose, you get tremendously marginalized, and you're not the force in 2022 20, and 24, for that matter, that that you could be." So Trump was a bit reserved. Trump was a bit measured. That's right. Cheeto Jesus, the guy that's never reserved, the guy that has never uh, pumped the brakes, he kind of sort of pumped the brakes, uh, tempered himself, and endorsed candidates that were, uh, dare I say, a little more in the political mainstream, and they knocked it out of the park. And the other takeaway is this. The Republicans are, are roaring to vote. I mean, if you give the Republican voter a chance to cast a ballot with someone with an R beside their name, they may be a conspiracy theorist, they may be an anti-conspiracy theorist, they're going to show up and vote. The Democrat turnout about the same, the Republican turnout through the roof in Texas. Um, I've not gotten to Latinos yet. I mean, there, there are a lot of um, Hispanic Latino vote that flip from Democrat to Republican. African-American state about the same. Um, I hate to say this, but, but as of this morning, we're doing about as good with African-Americans as we ever have. For whatever reason, there's an alliance, holy or unholy, I don't know, but there's an alliance between a Democrat, the Democrat Party, Democrat candidates, and African-American voters. We have, broke, uh, we have broken the stranglehold, we being Republicans. I mean, the, the, the Hispanics are up for grabs. I mean, there is no doubt about that. The Hispanics are totally up for grabs today. Um, I don't think there's the history you know, with Hispanics and a political party as there is with the Democrats. And, uh, and the African-American vote. But when you look at Texas and, and some of the uh, exit polling, um, much better with Hispanics about what they always have done uh, with African-Americans. Let's go to the phone. Uh, here's Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. 
Hey, guys. Sometimes between breaks, I'll go back and forth to different stations. And uh, one of us is an ABC affiliate. And one of the, um, I guess it was CBS, did a poll. And like 80% of the people that responded to that poll, they thought Biden did a jab-up job of reassuring the nation on his speech the other night. That I did not to tell you something, but that's not the reason I called. I uh, believe that the same people that brought us COVID worldwide, uh, see, we think of COVID as just in America, okay, just in America. But I think that the whole thing was a worldwide plan, and I do I got back with old Glenn Beck on this, so that great reset. And I think the same people that brought us COVID, the same people that daggled, uh, nearly destroyed all of these small businesses are behind this war in the Ukraine. And this war in Ukraine will destroy small businesses. It'll destroy people's daggone chances to, to build wealth. It will destroy more and more of the rights. They're already right now, the Democrat communists are trying to figure out a way to turn this war into a way to somehow make them retain power. And, it's, and I've figured out who the good guys are and the bad guys are worldwide. Thinking worldwide for a second. It's just the average citizen. We're all the good guys. The average Russian is being punished right now, like Tucker said. He didn't give a crap about fighting in the Ukraine. The Ukrainian people that are dying, the soldiers, but everybody worldwide is suffering at the hands of our corrupt politicians, these huge corporations that are making billions of dollars off of us, involved with China and the rest of us. But that's, that's who it is. And this whole war, I'm beginning to think, listen, if everybody was doing what was right for their country and what was right for the world, there wouldn't have been this war. If you think about it, the the Ukrainian guy was sitting there, he knows that as he daggone started, it's sort of like, you know, if he started trying to make out and French kiss everybody in the West, well, he knew that that was going to make Putin nervous. Putin knew that if he told them, told NATO that, hey, if, listen, if you guys try to um, bring Ukraine in to NATO, we're going to have problems. And NATO knew that if they dag old corner on the Ukraine, all of these things were known. Everything that has been going on, everybody has got to be as smart as I am. Everything that Joe Biden did was done on purpose. Everything that the Ukrainians did was done on purpose. When I say the Ukrainians, I mean their leaders. Everything that the Russians did was done on purpose. None of this is accidental, and none of this is incompetence. I refuse to believe that everybody there is stupider than I am. And they, every, I mean, there's always somebody smart enough in the room that says, yeah, but kid, that would work good, but this is what might happen. You see what I'm saying? There's somebody told, there's somebody had to tell Biden what would happen if he ended our domestic oil production. There's somebody had to tell the Ukrainian leader what would happen if he keeps saddling up too cozy to the West without playing Russia as a friend also. Putin had to know what would happen if he daggled in. Everybody knew what was going to happen, and they did it anyway. So what would that tell you? That was it done on purpose. They all knew what was going to happen. They all know what is happening. And then again, the worldwide, see, if prices are, if things are bad here in America, they're bad everywhere, worldwide. The entire world is suffering because of these people. I don't know what the hell to do about them, though. 
Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it, my man. See, and that's um, I mean that 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 takes conspiracy theory one hundred and one to the extreme. Um, don't have enough time in this segment, but I want to I want to come back because I mean Beck's talking a lot about the big reset. I mean that's why he wrote a book. I mean he's trying to sell a book, so everything is the big reset. Um, that's one thing I don't like about this business. I mean I've complained to Ray profusely about the problem I have with radio show hosts hawking their own game. I mean, it's a book here. It's a, um, it's a subscription there. It's a medication over there. It's some, you know, miraculous um, cane that'll help you walk better if you only buy it. It's, uh, let's take a break. <laughs> you, you, you know how upset I get and bothered. I mean, does every radio show host in America have chronic pain? You need the relief factor thing. Let's you, Back, back, back Take some, in, make you feel uh, better. Yeah, damn them. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. See, if I didn't know better, I think you'd being be, being a little critical of our uh, our brethren in talk radio and conservative political. Uh, I'm being observant, broad, not critical, observant. And but but you're but you're against them. You know, uh, ma- making no, no, a no, buck no. doing endorsements for n- products. Not not against them at all. We, we all do what we do. Right. Everybody lays their head down at night we on a do, my pillow. Don't we? Uh, all conservative radio shows lay their head down at night on a my pillow. Right. Uh, <laughs> after they take a handful of relief factor. After they get <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> it's, it's uh but but you and I have been confronted with some of those propositions. Sure. sure. And and you know, I've struggled with some of those. I, I really have. And uh, by the way, Mike Lindell makes a good pillow. Man I mean, makes there's a no good doubt pillow. about it. He's bat crap crazy, but the man makes a good pillow. <laughs> I mean he is. No question about it. Um that, uh, he's got that cross on his lapel. And then if he's not wearing the jacket, he's got a cross on a necklace. Um, you Always. know, and uh, right. any, anyway, well, yeah, Trump likes him, and he's been very dedicated to Donald Trump, and <laughs> but and, do, the, and the man makes a good pillow. But but do you do you struggle with that really? Absolutely, I do. Absolutely, I do. I can't speak for any of the others. Um, but every radio show host in America is taking relief factor, except me. I mean, I'm convinced of that, and they're being compensated, I would imagine. And if and Relief Factor offered you an endorsement deal that was very lucrative. No, I wouldn't do it. You wouldn't? No, I would not do it. Well, you've seen me, you've seen me um, two or three times struggle with um, being asked to do something. Mm-hmm. One comes to mind in particular. There was, a, um, there was a medical treatment that was proposed to Wake Up Carolina, and it was, um, was kind of cutting edge. And, and you know, the, 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 the guy had... Uh, you know, he'd listen to radio and he'd listen to our show and he thought he had, you know, we, we had some listeners that may consider what he wanted uh, to, to market or, or brand or, or advertise on behalf of. And, and I remember coming to you one day, Rev, and I said, Rev, I can't read this script. What do you mean you can't read the script? You're going to get paid to read the script. I said, because I don't believe in what I'm reading, man. I mean, I'm not going to tell somebody to go get something done to their body that I don't know anything about. So I went and visited with a guy and we ended up saying this is a, uh, an option to consider. And I was comfortable doing that. But the way it was initially proposed to me was, I know this works. Go get it done, and your world will never be the same. I don't know that. I mean, I, you know, um, no, I mean, I take a little bit of pride in, in, in not being a sellout. I mean, I understand we're in the business of advertising, and endorsements are a part of what we do here. Uh, for whatever reason, you people uh, tolerate us every morning from 6 to 10, and along with that comes some sort of relationship. It's, it's a bit unusual relationship. I don't know how to quantify it any better than you do. I mean that sincerely. I have no idea how to quantify this relationship any better than you do. But I respect it. I appreciate it. I don't want to screw it up. And I think if you perceive to be a sellout, you have a chance of screwing up that relationship. I think people believe when they listen to this show 
What is in my head is going to come out of my mouth. It's not always right. It's not always accurate. Um, sometimes it's a bit uh, intentionally manipulative to try to lead a debate in a particular direction or another. But, but I, you know, I can honestly say, when they came to me about, let's use my pillow as an example. What did I tell you? I said, let me sleep on the pillow before I say th- nice things about it. So I sleep on the pillow. Man makes a good pillow. I still think he's back crap crazy. <laughs> But the man makes a damn good pillow. So when I come on the airwaves and say, hey, try this pillow, I've tried the pillow, I used the pillow, and the pillow yep, works. I'll give you that for yeah. sure. So, so it, but when you start talking about medical, you know, and something done to the body, no, I got, I'm, I'm never going to be, there's not enough money. Uh, um, I don't think there's really? enough, I don't think there's really? enough money to, be, to convince me to try to <laughs> talk you and go and get some like sort that. of medical procedure. The question I'm asking is, Am I the only conservative radio show host in America not taking Relief Factor? Pretty much. Yeah, there you go, Kato. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Uh, we have Linda in Sumter listening to WDXY. i got about a minute here, Linda. Yes, good morning to everyone. Good morning. Hope y'all enjoy this day. My first question for a change is, well, maybe it's not a question. It's a statement. I haven't gotten one call from one black Democrat about what Ms. Harris, Vice President Harris said. And I didn't listen to it, so I don't know what she said. I woke up 4 o'clock, as I usually do, to listen to Coast to Coast, and they were playing this excerpt. And, yes, I thought she was talking to third graders, elementary school kids, even maybe high school kids. I didn't even know it what came in with it. So, yes, I'm embarrassed that she would say this on national TV. And I know other black folks are embarrassed because my phone hasn't run. Because they love to tell me how wrong I am. And they hadn't called you to tell you how wrong you're on this, Linda. Let's see if we can gain that. We, we played it yesterday. Let's play it again in the next hour. Back in a minute. The late, great Charlie Daniels. CDB. When I see CBD, I think of CDB. No, CBD is <laughs> no. yeah, not, that's very the, different. That's the other. I might do an endorsement for CDB and CBD, <laughs> but I'm not doing one for, um, what is it? Uh, Relief. Miracle Factor. Relief Factor. Relief Factor. Relief Factor. There Relief you factor. go. Um, In all fairness, uh, Ken, you, you say you're you're not for sale. I'm for sale. <laughs> Just to make that clear. Yeah. There you go. Don't put us there all in go. that box. There you go. Anybody yeah. wants the Bible thumper service, forget scripture. He's for sale. Right, Kato? That's it. There you go. There you go. Capitalism trumps Christianity every single time in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the world of which we um, are gainfully employed. Let's go to the phone. I want to come back in just a second, and, uh, and I don't want to read verbatim, but there's a very interesting article that I read about the Second Amendment and this, uh, this debate we've had uh, with citizens around the world about the, the right or uh, the privilege to own a gun. When you really think about the, the rest of Europe, we're talking earlier about the Western world has to come to grips with China and Russia, China an energy provider, Russia a manufacturer. Um, the Western world, in my humble opinion, has to figure out a way to separate itself from those dependencies. Uh, that's complicated. It's extremely complicated. But um, the United States is a, it's a unique nation in its tradition of its citizens to own firearms. I mean, the Second Amendment is not uh, a privilege. Uh, but it's a right. It's a constitutional right that is solid and unapologetic. And it says, you, the people, we, the people, have a right to keep and bear arms. In the rest of the Western world, it's kind of a privilege. If you behave long enough, we'll give you a gun. 
if you don't do, break too many of these laws, you know, we, we may allow you to have two guns or three guns. And in Ukraine, there's 43 million people and only one and a half million guns. In America, there's 330 million people and about 400 million guns. But our Constitution does not treat it as a privilege that the government can give, can take away anytime it pleases. It is a unapologetic right for we the people to keep and bear arms. Now, now, maybe this attitude is not shared by other countries around the world because they've never fought and defeated a global superpower at the time to achieve its independence. So I, I just think there's a very interesting, what, what are the Ukrainians doing today? They're taking up arms. There, there aren't enough guns. I mean, somebody in America sent a million bullets. Uh, I think I saw the other day with Tony, no, Richard, Richard Childress. Yeah, a race car owner, former driver and owner of the famous Dale Earnhardt team. Actually owned the car that Dale Earnhardt Sr. died in in Daytona in 2001, but he sent a million bullets to Ukraine. Um, you never in a million years imagined that that a nation of, you know, develop, a somewhat developed nation. Ukraine's not a, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's an emerging market, but it's a developed nation. But you would you'd never imagine a day that, the, the, the ordinary citizen would be compelled to go to the street corner and buy a gun. But that's where they are in America today, I mean, in, in Ukraine today. And they only have one, about one and a half million guns in a nation of 43 million people. Um, would Putin look at a country? Let's say Ukraine had 43 million people and 70 million guns. I mean, is it a little bit different? Sure it is. You better believe it is. I mean, it's an armed citizenry, if that's the case. But, but Putin's strategic. We, we call him a madman. You call him a ruthless dictator. You call him a psychopath. He's strategic no matter what he is. So some of the strategy had to be thoughtful of, hey, in Ukraine, there aren't a lot of guns. What if Ukraine had 50 million guns or 60 million guns? I just think it's a different story if that's the case. I've watched some of this on TV from Ukraine, and I've just thought to myself, I thank God for our founding fathers and the Second Amendment. No, no question about it. And the, un, uh, the unapologetic right, not the privilege that can or cannot be taken away at some politician's discretion, our founders unapologetically made that the amendment after the right to speak your mind. I mean, it's not the, the 14th Amendment. I mean, it's the Second Amendment for a reason, because right after them believing you had the right to speak your mind and say your piece. You had the right to bear and keep arms to continue to protect you uh, of that First Amendment right to speak your mind freely and, uh, and liberated. Let's go to the phone. Tony in Calhoun County listening to WTQS. Hello, Tony. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, I want to talk about the Ukraine. Uh, just like the media was talking about, you know, the Russian buildup of troops you know, on the border when they were actually in Yelnia. Um, they're out now saying that, you know, we're, we're embargoing them, but we're only embargoing things nobody wants to buy. So I'm not sure how effective that is. Um, they talk about SWIFT, you know, the cutoff from the international banking. Well, that's only the electronics transfer part of it. They can still use teletypes, um, fax machines. And so they can still participate in SWIFT. Uh, they just can't, you know, type the numbers in on the computer and hit, and hit enter. So I don't know how limiting that is. Um, any, in my experience, any time that your position and the media are on or in accord, you're in agreement, you better take a look at the basis of why you made the decision and what your position is, because you're probably wrong. Um, anytime the Democrats and Republicans both agree on something, 
you better hold on to your wallets and say goodbye to some of your freedoms. Um, when I called up Thursday last, I talked about you know, how Putin, what Putin wanted. What Putin wanted at the start was just a guarantee that NATO would not be allowed into the Ukraine. Um, why would he do that? It's because he's afraid of, of having to combat NATO. He doesn't have the forces to take out NATO. So our media is out there saying that, you know, Putin's going to take over this country and that country and this country. Um, I, I just don't buy it because I, he would have to take on NATO and he's afraid of NATO. He's already, you know, his actions have already shown that. Um, so the media is trying to, you know, gin things up, I think. Um, now, when Putin, when the media was talking about you know, how you know, Putin was talking about how close the troops are, or excuse me. The U.S. was talking about how close the Russian troops were and that was, they were in Yelnia. It took them six hours in combat to reach Kiev. Now, put yourself in Putin's position. What if NATO tanks were in Kiev? It would take six hours to reach Moscow, you know, in combat. And that's, that's just very close. I mean, Putin's defense posture, he'd have to have troops on 24 hours a day to be able to respond to that. I mean, you could never give troops the weekend off. You could never give them the night off. Um, he'd have to have three times the number of troops to constantly man tanks, you know, waiting for NATO's decision to move across towards Moscow. Um, so, so Putin wants that buffer zone of Ukraine is what I'm getting at. And that's all Putin's wanted was a buffer zone of that land because it's easier for Putin to respond to tanks he sees three days, you know, you know, that moved across from Germany to, to Ukraine are going to take two to three days to get to Moscow. He's got time to respond. Um, but Tony, so was I, there I, ever any, I mean, I know there have been multiple conversations and discussions, but, but it, I mean, I, I, I've tried to read and, and, and reason a, an argument that Ukraine was close to getting in NATO and I can't find any, I mean, they, they petitioned that they've asked and they've, they've always had a desire to be in NATO. And I think subconsciously or not subconsciously, but behind this, the scenes, NATO has wanted Ukraine to be a part of because it does place pressure on Russia, but I can't find any reporting of a serious conversation that led anybody to believe that NATO and Ukraine were about to make a deal. Well, if just, what was it? Was it yesterday or the day before yesterday? Um, Zelensky applied for a membership in the EU. I mean, he was begging to be allowed in the EU because he wants the EU defense forces sure. in Ukraine. So that's that. I mean, that had to have confirmed Putin's you know biggest fears. You know, he knew it was coming. They kept inching towards it, inching towards it. You know, because the U.S. doesn't move. You know, like a blitzkrieg. You know, they sneak up on you like a like a like a zombie or a you know mummy or a zombie. Like, why can't you just walk out of the way? But no, the U.S. creeps in and creeps in and creeps. It's insidious. Um, Putin's response was a blitzkrieg. It was impactful, kinetic, immediate. Um, so those two different people, I mean, they operate differently. So to answer your question, yeah, I mean, he just asked to be allowed into the EU, which is one step towards being a NATO member. And Putin's freaking out, and he wants his boy. He wants his buffer. But but he's asked to be in NATO. He's asked all of these things, but he's never got his request accepted. He's always been denied. There's always been a reason that the Western world has said, no, not now. No, not yet. Now, I understand the paranoia, Putin. 
I mean, I, th- I think both of us, I mean, we agree there that Putin has a, a paranoia about Western creep or American creep and, and not having a buffer there. Um, and, and for those that don't know, um, it, when you're a member of NATO, you're obligated to a treaty to defend fellow NATO countries. So if Ukraine is in NATO and, and Putin attacks Ukraine, the Americans and the Western world have no, I mean, if they're going to be uh, a country of its word, they have to honor that that treaty and, you know, help defend the border of Ukraine. I've just not seen any reporting or anything I've read that solidifies the argument that Ukraine was close to becoming a member of NATO. All right. I mean, I, you know, thank you, Tony. Appreciate it. I don't, I, you know, I, Tony and I don't disagree on, on this because we, I mean, you know, we, we talked earlier this week, and we'll talk again. Um, do you have Kamala Harris teed up? Let's do this. Let's play the, um, here's the vice president, and then I'll tell you a radio show host opinion. Um, now, now, once again, this lady is one heartbeat away from the presidency. She's one heartbeat away from being commander-in-chief uh, and, and ordering American forces to do X, Y, or Z. She's not speaking at a preschool. She's not speaking at kindergarten. She's speaking on an urban radio station. Uh, I would imagine largely African-American listenership, but here's how she argues that we need to be paying attention to Ukraine and Russia. If you're watching any level of news, even social media, you're seeing everything that's going on right now in the Ukraine. Break it down in layman's terms for people who don't understand what's going on and how can this directly affect the people of the United States. So Ukraine is a country in Europe. It exists next to another country called Russia. Russia is a bigger country. Russia is a powerful country. Russia decided to invade a smaller country called Ukraine. So basically that's wrong. I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, that, that, that is so unbelievable. That, that is not in layman's term. That is child's gibberish. If that doesn't freak Americans out, I don't know what will. I mean, Tony and I just had, what, what a three-minute conversation? Mm-hmm. And it's obvious he understands more about it than, than um, Vice President Harris. I think I understand that there's a, there's a mindset out there, because I've heard this discussed in the media, that she was, she kind of overdid it. I mean, you know, they, they asked her to break it down to layman's terms, and she just kind of went a bit too far in layman's term. No, that, I'm, I'm convinced that's about the way she understands it. That's about the limit of her comprehension that should uh, to Ukraine. You. It should freak all of us out because we don't have the most healthy man in the White House. I think we all agree to that. He'll be 80 this year. I mean, we've we watched him in and out of cognitive decline. Um, in, the, in the book by Bill Barr, it's, it's another damn problem or something like that. Barr wrote a book about his time at the White House and, and dealing with a lot of these um, issues. He says that Bill Barr, Bill Barr former AG, says that Joe Biden is intermittently alert. I mean, that means occasionally he got he has his A game and he's aware of what's going on. Um, that's intermittent. Sometimes he does, sometimes he does not. So to believe that she's a, because we always say this about the vice president, their heartbeat away from the presidency. Well, we never believe that until Kennedy gets shot. You know, or something crazy and unfortunate happens. This lady is one heartbeat away from ordering our young men and women into harm's way or not. I mean, if, 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 a, if, a, if something happens like, God forbid, Ukraine get invaded by Russia. I mean, that would never happen. But just imagine, hypothetically, that Putin got on his high horse. Um, we, we made some pretty irrational decisions and practical decisions about energy. I mean, let's just play this out. Hypothetically, we know this would never happen because we're governed by competent people. But just in case 
some incompetent man ended up in the White House, and we were governed by incompetency. And we decided to, uh, let's, let's say we uh, discontinued the permit for the Keystone Pipeline. And we refused to allow people to drill on government land. We did all these crap. I mean, it would never happen, but just play along just with me for a second. Yeah. And, and we became, the, the Western world became a little more energy independent or a little more energy dependent on Russia. And Putin were emboldened or empowered by that. And he invaded Ukraine. And if something happened to Joe Biden, this lady is in charge of the largest and most powerful military on this planet. I mean, that, none of that would ever happen. But just for argument's sake, what if it did? Hmm. How do you sleep at night? Back in a minute. 843 We talked a lot about energy this morning. We talked a little bit about Elon Musk. We talked about the, uh, the, the dependency the Western world has on some of the Russian energy production, manufacturing in China. China abstains from a U.N. resolution vote yesterday. But I found this article interesting when we looked at the Fox rundown this morning. Um, Ford Motor Company, because I believe long term the answer is renewables. I mean, anything we can do to wean ourselves gradually and incrementally off of fossil fuels is a good thing. I mean, I, I just sincerely believe that, but it's going to take an extended period of time. And one of the major moves that an American manufacturer has made is Ford splitting into two companies, one for electric vehicles and one for combustion engine uh, vehicles. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is in Chicago. So, Jeff, is it as literal and simple as that, that Ford is just splitting itself all of a sudden into two yeah. companies? Or what are the complexities? Yeah. I mean, that's it. The, that's exactly right. Two, it's 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 cutting the cutting it right down the middle. Uh, and and Ford Blue is going to focus on combustion engines, and Ford Model E will focus on electric vehicles. The company Ford says uh, she calls them separate but complementary businesses. In a move that the company says will help boost profits and streamline operations. So you've got engineers, you've got designers, you've got other Ford employees that will will either focus on EV or they'll focus on combustion efforts. And it seems to make sense in terms of, a, you know, how, how you run a company and you don't have people going from one one aspect of the company to, to another and back and forth. And instead you've got people just focusing uh, specifically on, on, on those units uh, rather than splitting their time. And, and Ford says the new structure will, will help it nearly double profit margins by 2026. That's the same year it plans to introduce a couple million electric vehicles to uh, to the market jeff this, i mean in, in all of these corporations there's a business ethic you know that there there's yeah. a commitment they make to what i don't know corporations i think have an obligation mm-hmm. to make the world a better place in some direct or indirect or indirect fashion but you're saying this is based on a market reality i mean they, they believe the market is ready to embrace electric vehicles and they become a more profitable industry by going with that flow that's not what I'm saying. So Ford is, Ford is saying that it, it's uh, so Ford is saying <laughs> it's going to help them streamline their profit. Gotcha. Uh, um, in, 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 in you know business sense, it, it makes sense you know to have to have employees. I mean, it's like it's like you know, having radio and television crews run both. It doesn't make sense. Focus on one thing while those the other crew will focus on the other. And so that's what Ford said. It's going to, it's going to allow it to streamline its operation, uh, whether or not. Consumers embrace electric. We'll see. We can. You can. You know. They're, they're they're embracing electric far more than we are in Europe right now. We're at about two and a half, maybe three percent, in terms of a footprint in consumers embracing electrics. Will it get higher? Uh, likely, as as companies like Ford and GM vow to to go virtually all electric. Volvo, same story. So, 
Um, it appears to be where we're headed. So uh, I think that uh, more and more people will be embracing electric vehicles as we go. Does this impact the consumer? Do we have any news from Ford about, you know, will you still be able to buy a combustion engine Ford F-150 and Ford Mustang, some of the, some of the legacy vehicles, <clears throat> or is this a, um, a kind of an evolution within the company that will discontinue some combustion models in preference to the electric models? Yeah, I mean, this is this is so it, – it's it, – you know, you, if you if you look at it, if you get that thirty thousand, you, you know, foot view, this is probably the infancy in terms of this this change with Ford, uh, and and where it plans to go. So right now, yeah, you've got the F one fifty L gas combustion. You also have the F one fifty Lightning pickup, all electric. You've got the Mustang Mach E electric and the Ford GT electric, <clears throat> but that's where it, it appears to be going. So will you be able to get the uh, the F one fifty or the uh, you know the the Sierra or the uh, the Silverado? Uh, in gas combustion engines uh, 10, 10, 15 years from now? Um, I think so, but maybe not. Very interesting. Not sure. Th- well, thank you, Jeff. That's very informative. Appreciate your time. Have a great day, sir. You too. Uh, I just saw that article. I thought it was interesting because we're talking about uh, we're talking about uh, energy and the producing of energy, the consuming of energy. I mean, I told Rev a second ago, I wrote the two words down, business ethics, because if we are going to aspire, and let's let's admit that's what we're doing because you know um, th- there's a certain way we've conducted business in this world that has proven to work, and and we don't like dealing with Russia, but but the Russian oil turns into gasoline just like American oil turns into gasoline, right? I mean, some of the Brent crude that comes out of Russia turns into gasoline; it burns in your car just as good as the Brent crude that comes out of Texas. So so when I go to the gas pump. And I fill my, you know, pickup truck up with, with with gasoline. I don't ask the cashier, did this gas derive itself from Russian produced oil or American produced oil? Um, so if we are going to evolve, and the word I use is aspire. I mean, this has to be aspirational in nature. I mean, because business, if you look at a spreadsheet, the bottom line, the businesses are going to say, hey, this has worked for years and years and years and years. But, but the day that, and I don't know the answer to this, and I'm not, I'm not judging you for not agreeing with me. I believe the day that Russia invaded Ukraine was the day we had to revisit the realities of the Western world's relationship with Russia. Not just Russia, guys, because Russia has made a deal with China that we'll never know the details. You nor I will never understand with clarity what sort of deal Xi made for the Chinese people. And that's right. I mean, the Chinese people didn't get a say in that. The Russian people didn't get a say in This is not the Russian people's war. I mean, I get tired of people saying the Russians invaded Ukraine. Putin invaded Ukraine. Putin is a ruthless dictator. The majority of Russians, I got to believe, are tired of war. That They're tired of tyranny. They're tired of dictatorships. We know that the people of Ukraine, since 1991 and the, uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, 85% of Ukrainians, if they've got to choose a world, the Western world or the communist world, you know what 85% of Ukrainians choose? The Western world. People kind of like being free once they taste a, a little bit to of Putin, it. Putin, Sure, that's an absolute threat to Putin. But believe it or not, it doesn't matter where you were raised or how you were raised. When you taste a little bit of liberties and freedoms and you're able to decide what you want to do on your behalf and on your family's behalf, you kind of like it. 
You, you, whether you live in England or Germany or France or America, it doesn't, Canada, it doesn't matter. You kind of like the idea of being able to make some decisions that, that, that blaze your trail or chart your course. Putin knows that. But, but here's the danger in where I think we are today, Rev. And I think long term, this is a, a fundamental issue that we're either going to address on our terms or their terms. When, 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 when Putin and Russia become so isolated, because whether the Russian people like it or not, they're going to be isolated because of this action taken by their dictator. The people of China, in similar fashion, are going to be isolated. But those are two powerful nations that have converged to, to basically take on the Western world. And I think the aspiration we must have and the business ethics will have to be a part of this. Corporations will have to put commitment to a, a way of life over profits. There'll have to be some involvement of business ethics. There's no way in this world you'll ever make a widget in Peoria, Illinois, as cheap as you can in Shanghai. We're not willing to allow kids to work 24 hours a day. We're just not going to do that. I mean, we believe in unalienable rights. We got a lot of issues. We made a lot of mistakes. I think our government is corrupt as it's ever been in this world, but it's not as corrupt as China's. It's not as corrupt as Russia's. Now, that's a hell of a way to score. You know, when you score the American democracy and you juxtapose it with, you know, the, the Russian commissar or dictator and the, um, the Chinese communist regime. I mean, we, we, we should outpace them in, you know, corruption metrics and measures within, within our government. But, but the, we, we've got to, the Western world, led by the United States, has to figure out a way to decouple itself from Russian energy and Chinese manufacturing. That there is no other way. As long as we depend on a communist country to provide a certain percentage, a large percentage of Europe's and a certain percentage of America's energy production and China to manufacture the widgets we consume, that there's going to be this unholy alliance. I mean, I argue it's unethical. I understand it because it's business. Somebody's got to make the widgets. Somebody's got to produce the oil. We in America have chosen to export our manufacturing, and the Biden administration chose to export our energy production. The Biden administration declared domestic energy production more dangerous than Russia or China. I mean, in essence, that's what they did. I said earlier, this is not all Biden's fault, but you talked about he exacerbated the problem. No question about it. Biden put this on steroids. He fast-tracked one of these realities. So when, I think Putin sees two things. Our unwillingness to put green energy as a secondary component of our energy production and kids falling off airplanes as we abandon Afghanistan. I think one is ideology. What have we argued climate change is? It's a religion. Hadn't we kind of argued that? What did, what did the withdrawal in Afghanistan look like from afar? We're Americans. We love our country. You can't argue it was not incompetent. I mean, people falling off airplanes, babies being handed over electric wire fences, $84 billion worth of military armament left behind, what, 175 Americans left behind. We bailed in the most incompetent cluster you-know-what way imaginable. And Putin saw that, and Xi saw that. Combine that with the unwillingness of the liberal element within our political apparatus saying, hey, we, 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 we know we got to have some degree of energy, but we're going to put the spotted owl before it. We're going to put the obtruse snail in front of that. You know, the, um, 
the salmon that migrates is going to take precedent over. And I think we can do both. I think we can conserve and be good stewards of the environment of this planet and produce energy. And if we don't, we're going to always have this this position of, or, or China and Russia will always have this position of leverage in believing that as long as America doesn't manufacture, that they need us. As long as America doesn't produce energy, they need us. So this morning, all the Western leaders should begin down the road, and this is a long, arduous road, but should begin down the road of declaring a, a goal of being completely energy independent of Russia and manufacturing independent of China. That's the way we address. And you're talking about isolate? China and Russia believe they can live in isolation. You know what they can't live with? Commerce. One is a, a, a global manufacturing plant. The other is, as John McCain said, a gas station masquerading as a nation. First world military, third world economy. Let's, let's make Putin and Xi honestly understand what it feels like to be isolated. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. couple of callers there. Let's go to the phones. Here's Robin in Florence listening to Live 95. Hi, Robin. Hey, good morning, fellas. Ken, I want to know if y'all have seen on the Business Insider where a Russian businessman has put a million-dollar bounty on Vladimir Putin's head calling for the military officers to arrest him as a war criminal. Yeah, there's actually two or three reports out there, Robin, where they're suggesting, I, don't, I can't confirm this, obviously, but, but some of the uh, internals, of the Kremlin are not real happy that um, they, they, they supported the invasion, and they but they didn't support the way it's happening now. In other words, when um, when Putin ran into some resistance, they believe he got real frustrated and went scorched earth, and and some of these oligarchs are paying a big price. Some of these powerful people in Russia uh, that have money and influence around the world um, that their their lives are fundamentally different today. And you know, once again, they supported the invasion. They just didn't support the the bombing of libraries and hospitals and and killing of innocent people. And that seems to be, um, I mean, I can't confirm it, obviously, but there's multiple reports out there that say there are two or three bounties on the head of Vladimir Putin. Now, ask you something else. Yes, sir. Sure you can. How is the U.S. paying for all that oil if there's not supposed to be any banking transactions with Russia? That's interesting, isn't it? Um, rules Pro- for, probably exempt. Rules for thee, not for me. Uh, thank you, Robert. Appreciate the call. Um, yeah, I, I thought of the same thing. I said, okay, if we're disallowing any sort of financial transactions, well, that's what we've been told with SWIFT, you know, th- this um, this texting messaging system that, that allows transactions. I mean, I don't understand international finance. We'll profess to. I hear somebody talk about commercial paper and overnight lending and the Fed's lending window. I mean, I know enough about that to be dangerous. But Swift, I, I didn't know what it was. I mean, I didn't know what. When I hear Swift, you know what I think of? Swift boat. And I think of two people, John Kerry and Boone Pickens. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, <laughs> Boone Pickens paid for all the uh, the negative advertising in Swift boats to run against John Kerry. Uh, some of it was a little bit misleading, but it worked. John Kerry didn't become president of the United States. Um, but, but I do think of... Uh, if we're buying about 600 and some odd thousand barrels of oil a day, is Russia running a tab? <laughs> I mean, it's Russia saying, well, I'm sure you folks will pay me when all this controversy uh, ends, so just put it on the tab. Of course not. They're, they're transferring money. Uh, they're wiring funds. And if we're told that Russia doesn't have the ability to transfer nor wire funds, then how are they selling oil to America? And once again, 
You know, our, our government, believe it or not, talking out both sides of its mouth. I, I bet they made an exemption for but, those but guys, types of a transactions. Lot of the, but, but don't you agree with me? I mean, we, we can philosophically disagree with, with, with where we are. I mean, I, I think we're going to hell in a handbasket unless we fundamentally change. I mean, I'm talking about dramatic change in the way we run our country. I mean, I, I think our better days are behind us if we don't address some of the very serious issues that lie ahead. I mean, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to look at the balance sheet of the U.S., the sentiment of the U.S., the way it's incompetently governed. And I'm not talking about just Democrats. There's plenty of blame that Republicans bear for making absolutely irresponsible and impractical decisions when they're in charge of government. But but can't we agree that that us depending on mortal enemies for manufacturing and energy are something we need to address? I mean, I think of some of our my liberal friends here. I mean, if, if we can manufacture here or at least have manufacturing done by people that are our allies, England, Germany, France, I mean, we've had our issues with them, but they, they've never invaded foreign lands. I mean, they're, they're not expansionist at heart, that they share a similar set of worldviews. Do I wish Germany would do more to, to promote the Western core? Of course I do. I mean, I think America's been on an island for many, many, many years and being the sole advocate for Western culture and the Western way of life. I think everybody's ridden our coattails. I think we've done the heavy lifting and everybody's kind of got behind us and said, hey, you folks go do it. I mean, you're the big, bad United States of America and we have obliged. I mean, we've done this in the name of liberties and freedoms and, 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 you know, liberating human capital and allowing men and women to pursue uh, their dreams. But, but I think we can all agree. I mean, I'm thinking of, I'm not going to call his name, but I'm thinking of a person in particular that didn't want Trump to be president and is probably more comfortable with Biden at the helm. But can't we agree that we've got to wean ourselves off Chinese manufacturing? Can't we agree that, that we're a safer, more prosperous people if we're not depending on Russia and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and Iraq and Iran to provide the oil necessary to refine the petroleum and power our vehicles uh, from point A to point B? Mean, can't we agree with that? I mean, m- maybe none of us can agree what to do about it. But I think fundamentally, but that's a pretty simple proposition. We've got to stop depending on bad actors and people who despise our way of life for the very goods and products that take to live uh, the way we do. Let's go to the phone. Jamie's up next. Hey, Jamie. Good morning, fellas. Um, Ken, this goes back to the um, the gun issue and Ukraine not having as many guns as we did. Um, I think it was uh, Yamamoto was asked about invading America during World War II. Supposedly, he said that he would never consider it because there is a gun behind every blade of grass in America. Mm -hmm. So, you know, leaders like that, they think about those things. So if Ukraine had the ability like we had, I don't think this would have happened. And that's all I wanted to say. Thank you, Jane. Well, there's a reason it's called a shooting war. I mean, that's when the bullets fly. And the fundamental difference in, in, in the way we've uh, allowed our people to be armed is just different than the rest of the world. The rest of the world basically says um, that the government gives you this privilege. And as long as you act and behave according to government policy, you know, we won't take that privilege away. Now, they can take it away anytime they choose. And they have in certain cases and situations. The Second Amendment is an unapologetic right that you, the American people, have um, 
to defend yourself, to protect yourself, to 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 protect your not just your liberties and freedoms, your property, your well-being. And 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 if if Putin makes a count, I mean, the the scenario I painted earlier this morning, Ukraine has about forty-three million people, one and a half million guns. I'm rounding off here, but that's pretty close. America's 330 million people and 400 million guns. What if Ukraine had 50 million guns? I mean, you're not going to beat tanks and, and, and nuclear armaments and, and ballistic missiles. But, but if I'm a Russian soldier and I'm, I'm policing the state, or excuse me, the city of Kiev, and I know that every Ukrainian that doesn't want me there has a gun, I, I'm a little less aggressive. I'm a, I'm a little less effective a police force. But if I know that one of every 40 people have a gun, eh, I'll take my chances. I, I'm a little bit, I'm doing, the, I'm doing Putin's bidding in, in a little bit more aggressive fashion. But once again, um, it, is a, it is an unapologetic right that we have. In Ukraine, and most of the world for that matter, it's a privilege that the government gives and periodically chooses to to take away. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Go to the phone. Got about a minute here. Mark in Branchville. Hey, Mark. Good morning. Hey, hey. Hello. Hello. Thank you, Matt. You hear me? Yeah, go ahead. We, you broke up for a second. We got you now. I said, you know, I've got two things. But what, one is people in America, we really don't realize, you know, the last time we had foreign boots on, on the dirt, was in 1812. You know, we know nothing about uh, what people see. There's plenty of people in you. Mark, I'm sorry, my man. I know you held on, but we're losing. You're in a bad area, and it's probably our fault for putting you on hold as long as we have. we got a hard break top of the hour. Please call back. want to hear what you gotta, what you got to say, but um, we were losing. Couldn't hear but about every third or fourth word uh, you said. And I can hear somebody out there saying, we can't hear about every third or fourth word you say. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's any different about that? I think I've got it down to one of every two words I say you guys understand. I have tried to condition myself to slow down. I just can't. I, I, I cannot Sometimes do it. My hard. wife says, slow down. I can't. Don't know how. Back in a minute. I got a text from a friend just a second ago. I always talk about these texts, but this is the content of the show. People ask me all the time, where do you get all this stuff you talk about from you? I mean, I've got about eight or 10 or 12 websites I go to every day, and i got about three or four uh, digital online newspapers that I read every day. And I don't read the Wall Street Journal from cover to cover. Um, I read a good bit of it. I don't read the New York Times from cover to cover. I'll find four or five or six articles that kind of interest me. And I'll, uh, kind of weird, Rev knows this, I send emails to myself. And then I print the emails and I've already got them kind of highlighted as what I think is important uh, talking points. But I got a text a second ago. So in, in, in G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip, because that's kind of the strategy employed here on Wake Up Carolina, um, in layman's term, Russia's a big country and Ukraine's not. That's not in layman's term. That's in idiocy terms. That's just somebody who doesn't understand uh, the world they live in, the complexities of the world they live in. But someone had asked, asked a, a very interesting question that I have no idea what the answer is, and that is if Russia and China are teaming up, are they more powerful than the United States. Mm. Oh, wow. Mm. We don't believe China independent of Russia is. We don't believe Russia independent of China. But if they made this alliance, are they combined more powerful than the United and, States and if the of goal America? of their alliance is to 
basically bring us down and defeat us in some way, shape, or form, could they do it? Well, let, let, let's, let's say this. Uh, February the 4th, uh, what, a month ago, uh, about, about exactly a month ago, Russia and China entered into a no-limits partnership. I mean, this is a public proclamation. They said that there is now a no-limit partnership, um, and this is after Putin met, met with Xi. They met on February the 4th. Um, I may try to do this tonight and tomorrow. There's a 5,000-word joint statement that they released, and that they basically say that there is no forbidden areas of corporation. It's not it's not a merging of nations. I mean that's impossible. You got cultures and way of lives and and you got, you know, boundaries and mountain ranges and all these other sorts of things. But the the two words no limits and the other words no forbidden areas of corporation uh, are in this five thousand word joint statement. Um China sided with Russia multiple times about NATO enlargement. And then most recently, of the 141 nations, 193 nations voted yesterday in the U.N. General Assembly on a resolution to basically condemn. What does that mean? It means nothing. I mean, this word's on paper. I mean, Putin could care less how many times the U.N. condemns him. But it makes the Western world feel like they're more committed, and then they put their foot down, and they're going to show Vladimir Putin. They're going to teach him a lesson or two. Uh, Russia voted against it. North Korea voted against it. Syria voted against it. Belarus voted against it. And China abstained. So China has basically argued, um, we're on Russia's team. We believe, and what China's doing strategically is saying, you know, we're not sure we can be the preeminent superpower as soon as we need. Here's what both nations have established uh, in, their, in their internals. They believe that we are in dramatic decline. I mean, I can assure you of this. In some of their internal conversations, the nature of America, the state of America, I mean, Biden gives this phony baloney state of the union. I mean, the state of the union sucks. I mean, inflation is rampant. If you're a middle-class American, you're spending about $385 a month now that you weren't spending before inflation became so rampant on everything from hamburgers to gasoline to shirts to cars to whatever. Whatever consumer good you purchase, you're paying about $385 more per month. Now, you could live in California. That's about $550 a month. So unless you've got a $385 a month raise at your uh, gainful employment, you're, you're taking a pay cut. And a lot of it is government action. Some of it is supply chain and COVID-related. But the majority is not COVID. It's what we chose to do about COVID shutting businesses down, um, taking kids out of school. There's a big, I mean, there'll be a generational price to pay for what we've done. But but Putin and Xi and some of their internals have, have concluded that, that America's in decline. And if America's in decline, the Western world's probably in decline. Some of the Scandinavian countries would argue they are not as um, connected to the Western culture, the Western way of life. They're Western nations, but they have, when you look at the happiness indexes, and the, the freedom indexes, they outrank America now. We're, we're not as happy. We're not as prosperous. Um, therefore, we're, you know, by, by the nature of capitalism and market-based economies, we're in decline. But, but here's, let's get it more specific. So we know that, um, that Putin and Xi met February 4th. We know out of that came a 50, excuse me, a 5,000-word joint statement. We, we know that they have publicly said there is now a no-limit partnership 
between Russia and China. We know that there is no forbidden area of cooperation. That's a substantial news story. But that, that's a big deal. KT McFarland spoke about this at CPAC. I mean, she went into great detail. She was a Trump uh, d- diplomat. I mean, she kind of bartered some of the, um, I'll say some of the trade, so, some of the tariff arrangements with China. KT McFarland was very hawkish on that, very aggressive in believing that we got to deal with China, address China. So on, on February 4th, when they make this announcement, they also announce that a Russian state-owned energy company named Gazprom, G-A-Z-P-R-O-M, it's a state-owned energy company, they entered into a 30-year deal with the state-owned China Natural Petroleum Corporation, and this means that Russia will now send China an abundance of natural gas via a pipeline. I mean, they're building pipelines. We're not. We're, 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 we're uh, decertifying. They're certifying. I mean, Putin and Xi don't need a certificate. They just build the damn thing. I mean, Vladimir calls Xi. Hey, you want to build this pipeline? Yeah. What do you think the people? Uh, well, I mean, we'll explain that when the time comes. How about the spotted owl? How about the salmon? How about the turtles? You need oil. We can produce it. You need natural gas. We can produce it. So now there is a, a pipeline linking the Russian Far East. Let's get geography here. The Far East of, uh, of Russia and northeastern China. That, that's kind of where this pipeline enters, uh, leaves Russia and goes into. So, so they've made a deal. You know what I think about when I hear that? I hate to say this because it sounds like I'm condoning some of what they've done. You know what I hear, though? I hear competency. I mean, I hear leaders with clarity. I mean, they're dictators. They're brutal dictators. But I hear a certain degree of competency. They get things done. They, 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 you know, they, they're, they're not willy-nilly about who did we offend? How politically correct was that? Wonder if um, the Western world thinks that was woke enough. No, they have an unholy alliance, and they're committed to it. And their motivation is to become the superpower. Their motivation is to replace America as the dominant force in the geopolitical, uh, the geopolitics of the planet we live on. I mean, that, that is their ambition. It's unbridled. It's unabashed. They're not ashamed of it. Do, do they send a postcard out of the mail saying, hey, we wish to abolish America from the planet Earth? No, they can't. We're a consumer. But they want to put us in a very secondary role. And you don't do that. I mean, if America's competently governed, they're not as unabashed. They're not as aggressive. If America withdraws from Afghanistan after years and years of success and a democracy is in place, Putin says, gee, hey, America's got their feces consolidated. I mean, those guys are, that's a, I mean, it's only, not only is it a powerful country, it's a pretty well-run country. But I think Xi and Putin have concluded these are not irrational people. I don't care what anybody says about Putin. Putin's changed. I mean, Condoleezza Rice said it Sunday morning. Putin's different today than he was before. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Putin is demonstrating the signs and symptoms of psycho, uh, being psychopathic. Maybe, maybe not. All I know is they met in February. They made a deal. Out of that deal came a 5,000-word joint statement. In a month, Putin invades Ukraine. You, you got to admit, in the weirdest kind of way, it demonstrates the quality of, of competence. I'm sorry. We said we're going to do something. 
and we do it. I'm not defending it. I'm not condoning it. Stop with that nonsense. I would never defend nor condone what, what Putin and Russia have done. But, but it appears to me that they have much more clarity and certainty about what they want to do to emerge as the world leader and replace America. And we don't have a clue. I mean, we're trying to be politically correct. We're trying to be woke. We're trying to, you know, make everybody inclusive and diverse and, and transgenderism and, you know, ba- baby, I mean, young children being able to sign release forms that allow them to have sex change surgeries. You don't believe that's baked into the cake? I mean, when G and Putin meet, do you think it's oil? It's all about oil? It's all about natural gas? You don't think there are conversations about the West, the United States in particular? Of course there are. I mean, you don't believe that Russian leaders and Chinese leaders have talked about the state of affairs in America. I mean, we're talking about them. I mean, are we so arrogant to believe that nobody second guesses anything we do and how we do it? Hypothetical phone call. Putin calls Xi. Hey, you know, we got that 5,000-word joint statement. We got about 4,800 of it we've approved. We got about 200 more we got to approve. Where are you? Where about where you are, Vladimir? Hey, did you see where in, um, in the Ivy League of America... You know, those prestigious universities that, um, that produce their leaders. I mean, that, you know, the, we've already done about the government. How many, how many Ivy Leaguers are running government agencies and some of the institutions and bureaucracies? About half, maybe 60% are run by Ivy League graduates. So, so we look at the Ivy League as some um, amazing credential. He went to Harvard. Cato, did you go to Yale? <laughs> oh, you didn't. Okay, get in the back of the line. We don't worry about meritocracies. We're not talking about success or failure. We're talking about pedigree and, and qualifications and um, the, the institutions and bureaucracies that celebrate that, that sort of nonsense. But, but Putin says to Xi, hey, um, we'll get to the statement here in a minute. We'll get to this Gazprom deal. I mean, I think we've got our deal lined up. If you've got your deal lined up, yeah. Hey, what, what about over in America, man? Did you see where that Ivy League swimmer who used to be a dude is transitioning to a female and is breaking all the swimming records in college athletics in the Ivy League, you know, where they produce all the presidents and secretaries of state and and vice presidents and members of Congress? Yeah. Can we make this 5,000-word joint statement 10,000 words? (laughs) I mean, seriously, guys. And so back to the original question, if they are combining forces and have these alliances, I mean, do they have a chance to put us in the place they want us in? If we don't address some of the very serious issues we face in a very serious fashion, yes, absolutely. Wow. Nothing is forever. I mean, we're arrogant enough to believe that that God is on our side. Okay. God lets you do math. I mean, if you choose to borrow $30 trillion with no ability whatsoever to pay it back, are there not worldly consequences to that? This is not heaven. Right, Cato? That's right. I mean, this is earth. I mean, we are in our earthly existence. You can be spiritual all you want and say, yeah, but God will defend those who defend him. Are we defending God? I mean, what did we just talk about? A dude swimming against women because he's evolving or transitioning into being a female. There, there's a testosterone count in this. I mean, just think how silly that is. And when you're an adversarial world leader, yeah, you got bombs and missiles and military spending, but you've also got this this ethic or lack of, this virtue or lack of that demonstrates to me an unseriousness about a nation 
that has very, very, very serious problems on its plate. Take a break. Back in a minute. How many of our listeners had any idea about this deal, this no limit, uh, no forbidden areas of corporation deal between Russia and China? I mean, did you heard about I, it? I, I did not. I remember when Putin and Xi met. Mm-hmm. And, February 4th. Yep. And yep. Uh, and I thought, ooh, that might not be good. Out of that came this 5,000-word joint statement that Russia and China now have uh, this arrangement, this alliance, this partnership, and, and energy is at the center of this. I mean, they're, they're constructing, and on the same day they made the announcement, um, the Russian state-owned energy company, Gazprom, uh, signed a 30-year deal with the state-owned China Natural Petroleum uh, Corporation, and, I mean, that deal is, is energy-related. I mean, it's China and Russia making a deal with one another. Um, China has the technology and a lot of the aspiration. Russia is a big energy producer, and I've said it, and I'll say it again. Today in America, the only serious debate, that we need to be having. I mean, there, there are a lot of debates that are worthy, but the most serious debate today in America, how do we wean ourselves off of foreign oil? I mean, there, there are ancillary and secondary debates, no doubt about it. We'll talk about taxes, and we'll talk about transgender swimmers, and we'll talk about all these other uh, politically correct and woke things, and, and that'll dominate most of the, the media discourse. But, but we have got to figure out a way to be more serious and more vigilant in pursuing energy independence. Like Trump or not, he understood that part of it. Energy is power and influence of the global marketplace. And we're not producing as much as we did. We have the ability to produce much, much more, and we should and need to, in urgent fashion, address that inefficiency of the, um, of the American economy. Fourth-generation oil and gas professional knows much more about this than I ever will, I would imagine, is with us this morning, Jay Young. Jay, good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? So is it fair to say that there has been a significant underinvestment in America um, by, by oil and gas exploration to create the energy independence that, that allows us to be not, not dismissive of Russia action or what China does, but, but to be less affected by it? Absolutely. Great point. And there's three reasons why right now that we're not drilling for oil in the United States, which is a huge problem. And we, we need to be drilling for oil in the United States, as you mentioned. But there's three reasons why we're not. I mean, number one, the government is still, still. I mean, two weeks ago in the, on the weekend, I read an article, headline, government shutting down permits in, in, in some area. I forget where it was. But it was like government's getting in the way again. They're, they're the government the pipelines, the regulations, you know, the, the, the states. Like, if you want to drill a well in Colorado, it'll take you three to four months to get a permit. You want to do it in Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, we could do it this weekend. You know, it's just the states are really, really involved in, in how you drill for oil and gas and how long it takes you to get a permit to drill. The second reason is because of institutions are pulling out. They've been pulling out for a long time. They, they spent hundreds of billions of dollars during Trump, and then we drilled baby drill. I mean, we had our production way up. Everybody's doing good, making money. Gasoline at the pump was $2, and everybody's doing good. Then all of a sudden, we quit doing that, and all of a sudden, here goes oil prices and gas prices going crazy. Now we're paying three fifty, three sixty. It's going to 4 or 5 The third is public companies aren't drilling for oil and gas. You know, the, the public companies like Exxon, they make $6 billion last quarter. They spend $10 billion buying back their stock. Instead of 
putting that money back to work, there's a lot of reasons why companies, public companies are not taking advantage of higher oil prices right now by putting more rigs to work. There's still rigs and yards that are not working. We're, we're still halfway to where we were before the pandemic on the rig count. Rig count is, you know, a rig drills for oil and gas, and then you know, once the rig drills a well, then it increases the production in the United States. We're still 20 30% away from where we need to be on the production side in the United States, but we're also, we're just not drilling. Well, that's a challenge. That's a real big challenge of what we have, and we are not drilling for oil in the United States, therefore we have a problem. Jay, because we're not drilling, uh, we're, we're more dependent on Russia, more dependent on Saudi Arabia, more dependent on Iraq or Iran or some of these middle, some of these OPEC countries that do produce in, in an abundance. Um, what potentially could happen? I, I want you to play out a scenario. I mean, if, if the Russia-Ukraine um, conflict drags on and oil continues to rise and America chooses to not be as productive as it can be, I mean, is it is it scare tactics or fear-mongering to say gas could go to 6 or $7, or is that something that needs to be on the table? No, it, it can. It really can because, you know, like when, when the summertime comes and when everybody wants to go see their families or they – they want to go, um, you know, on vacations. Well, then we're not going to have the oil we need. The supply isn't going to be there. Well, then that's going to drive prices way up. So, you know, it, it's it's going to be a problem here in the United States. It's going to be a problem for a long time. Oil prices are up. It's going to be great for, you know, the oil and gas companies because we'll be making more oil. And, I mean, if you look at it, if you look at it, if, if a well is producing, you know, a 1,000 barrels a month and you, you multiply that times 100, Compared to multiply times thirty dollars a barrel, I mean it's a lot better for me. I mean, one of my one of my guys that works for me, he was talking about. He said the other day, he goes, "Man, he goes, give me four more years of Biden." He said, "Man, we're so busy, we can't stand it." I mean, it's like, you know, the oil and gas companies are making money, so it's good to invest in oil and gas. Buy my book; it's on Amazon or Apple, or go to my website. I'll send you one. Whatever, I don't mind. I'd love to send you one. What is, what is the book, Jake? It's called The Upside of Oil and Gas Investing. I wrote it a couple of years ago. I'm writing a second version now because things have changed in the world global markets, but they haven't changed to where we still need 20 million barrels in the United States. to. Um, that, that's, a, that's our appetite. And we're producing 12. And we're not going up as fast as we need to. And so that world demand and that, that – where do we get that extra oil from? I mean, you know, Mexico, Canada, they're good. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll make peace with us because we do a lot of business back and forth. But you know what? When you need a million barrels a day from other countries like Saudi Arabia or Russia, and you're going to buy it from them, man, the price just went up. Jay, what is this is you the know, weirdest question I could ask, but I got to ask it. What is a fair price for a barrel of oil? I mean, I know the market dictates supply and demand. I get all that. I mean, I'm a business guy, so I'm not in the oil business, but I understand the metrics and measures of a free market. But 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 what what is a stable and reasonable price where, where the oil companies can make money, be profitable, have a return to shareholder, but the consumer doesn't get you know ripped off at the pump? Yeah, I mean, hey, we could do it. As, and I like the sixty seventy dollar range, and the reason why is because we can make money. You don't have a lot of other people get in the business like right now. It, it's hard to get a rig. It's hard to get pipe. It's hard to get other services. You know, it's because everybody everybody wants to do it at a hundred dollar oil. But if we came down to 60, 60 to 80, let's say if we went from $60 a barrel to $80 a barrel, your prices would be $2 at the pump. 
everything would, would be fine. We'd be good. We'd still be making we'd, – we'd make money. Our internal rates of return would look good on our prospects. We couldn't drill as many wild prospects as we, we would at $100 or $120 that doesn't need as much oil. But still, we could still do it, and I believe that a lot of companies would. Now, now with private equity companies or institutions come back in the markets, I feel like they would if they weren't scared of, you know, because I'm sure that's in their board meetings. What if oil goes to minus $37 a barrel again? What's going to happen to our investment? You know, that'll kill the investment. And it didn't stay there long, but obviously, but then it, it came about. But it was better than it, it was. It was. It worked out fine for the companies like ours that we didn't sell any oil during that time. And then all of a sudden we came through it. We're fine. We can make money at 60 to $80 a barrel. That would be a great little, you know, back and forth. Um, so we don't we don't need as much oil from Russia, but we've got to start drilling here. And, and the money, I mean, drilling. your your investment dollars, your business is domiciled in America. I mean, we're not sending money abroad. We're not sending uh, to fund terrorists. We're not sending to fund Putin's actions against Ukraine. You know, I I, I don't want to pay $100 a barrel oil. I don't want to pay $4 at the pump. But if I'm paying it, I want the money to stay in the United States of America. The, the frustration I have as a consumer is not only am I paying 4 bucks at the pump, the majority of the profit and proceeds is going to a country that 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 doesn't have my best interest at heart. Is that is that is that something you guys talk and think about? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I was on Jimbo Hannon the other night, and this lady called in. I forget where she was from, but she called in. I think from Ohio, and she was saying, "Well, Mister Young, why don't just a bunch of you old guys get in a room and just just say, hey, let's let's start drilling again, and let's let's get back and you know wave wave the American flags." And I'm like. Man, that'd be awesome if I had a couple of hundred billion dollars in my back pocket. That would be great. There's just so much that it takes infrastructure-wise to get the rigs running, to get everything going again. It, it, I mean, the pandemic killed it. I mean, the pandemic just, just, I mean, you know, Russia, Saudi Arabia oversupplied us with oil right before the pandemic, and then the pandemic killed our demand, and our supply went way down. But in getting back up there, we don't need for people to get in their way. And that's what's happening right now. There's so many different things that are getting in their way that I don't see why oil does stay down. You know, the government's not helping. State governments aren't helping. Even city governments are getting involved in some things. I mean, if I want to drill a well in Kansas or Oklahoma, Texas, I mean, no problem. Colorado, forever. You know, institutions, the money's just not as free as it was at one time where people could, you know, they, they, come in and say, okay, well, you guys have this much oil and gas, we'll loan you this. Loans are way down in the United States. That hurts us. We need to get back and we need to start drilling for oil here. But during the meantime, people need to look at investing in oil and gas. I mean, they really need to look at, whether it's with me or whether it's whatever, yeah. need to look at it because it is going to be a good industry for the next three to five years. Okay, Everybody let, needs to be there. Uh, t- tell us the name of the book again. We probably have some listeners that are interested in that. What's the name of the book? How can they find it? It's called The Upside of Oil and Gas Investing, and it's on my website, kingoperating.com. You can go to upsideog.com, upsideog.com. You can fill out an assessment to see if you're right for oil and gas. And if you are, I'll send you an autographed copy of my book. And I'd love to send, you know, 20 of them, the next 20 to your to your guests right there, just because they're looking at it and they want to know if, if oil and gas investing is right for them. 
It is something that's going to be here for a while. I'm really excited about our funds and how we're doing in our investments. But I know you didn't call to, to, for me to solicit all your people. But I know that, that I know one thing. I'm excited about this business and where we're going right now in this business. And we are, we are excited. We've got great product. We're producing. We're sending out revenue checks, monthly revenue checks to investors. They love it. And there's great tax breaks. Biden needs to give us tax credits. He needs to give us more tax breaks. He needs to do something to get this United States back so we can start waving the American flag and not 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 throwing money to Russia so they can they can harm Ukraine and all other countries and no tell them what's gonna happen in the next two, three months. Here, here. Jay, thank that's you for your time. Appreciate appreciate it, my man. Good to talk to you. Thank you. That's that's kind of an interesting take. But but listen to what he said now. I mean, there's one thing he said that you gotta remember. What did he say about before the pandemic? The Russians flooded the market with oil. You know why the Russians flooded the market with oil? To discourage American production. I mean, when, when, when the price of oil gets to south of 40 bucks a barrel, Jay just said it, we can make money at 60 to $80 a barrel and you can afford gasoline. What about $2 a gallon? Maybe two twenty a gallon. I mean, I've done some correlation when he was talking. I mean, I, I was in the convenience store business. Gas would be about but between $2 and $2.20 a gallon. At at you know sixty at sixty bucks a barrel maybe a dollar eighty nine, at eighty bucks a barrel it may be two twenty, but that's a reasonable range. But I, mean, I think that's a that's an affordable price of, of a gallon of gas. I mean, how many of you agree with that? I mean, Katie, you think that's I mean from a dollar ninety to two twenty? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we can do. Okay. I mean, I'd rather have it dollar twenty nine. But you know, I mean, I understand all companies have to make a profit, and uh, some of some of the wildcatting. You know, you drill, drill, drill. You don't find oil. You drill, drill, drill. Don't find oil. Then all of a sudden you drill and you find oil and you make a lot of money. But that's the nature of business. I mean, that's kind of the risk, the risk reward proposition in business. But the one thing he said before the pandemic, the Russians, excuse me, that's unfair. Putin flooded the market with oil to discourage American production. We've got to address that. We've got to be more creative. We've got to be more competent. Like you said, he's no idiot. Well, he's no idiot. No, you don't survive as a, I mean, you don't stay dictator that long by being a moron. And I think they believe, I mean, if you believe Putin is psychopathic, you may be right, I don't know. If you think he's a madman, you may be right, I don't know. Here's what I know. He's a damn highly effective world leader that right now has America, he thinks, on the ropes. Who created the partnership with China? Vladimir Putin. Who flooded the oil markets? Vladimir Putin. I mean, we can, we can agree that those are somewhat maniacal and diabolical, but they're highly competent. And we deserve the same sort of competent decisions out of our American leadership. And if we don't get that, Rev asked a second ago, uh, you know, could we be on our last leg? I, I'm not, I don't have any idea what the answer to that question is. I can't begin to fathom what it would take to go down that road. But we are an incompetently governed nation. And if we don't address that sooner than later, we'll get what we deserve. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I want to be as clear as I can be. This is not the Democrats' problem. This is America's problem. As much as we blame the Democrats for a lot of the missteps, the the, the globalist mindset of Washington D.C. has led to this problem. But I mean, it was inevitable. Once America became less concerned about its interest, and we can go to globalist bankers and corporate America and exporting jobs. And I mean, once again, Rev, as I've said before, and I've tried to clarify this as well as I can, it is a very, very complicated matter. 
But the political reality or the geopolitical reality is there are two countries that have not declared war on the United States, but would love nothing more than to see us not be the dominant force in, 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 in global politics or economic matters for that. But I, I want to I be as clear as I can be. This is not the typical, you know, the Republicans did this or the Democrats did that. This is American government demonstrating a degree of incompetence that has led Russia and China down the road, uh, believing now may be the right time to, you know, um, threaten American dominance over the past century. I mean, we, we, we declare, I mean, don't most people believe we've lived in the American century? I mean, the last century was the American century. I mean, do we believe this will be another American century? I think that's a bit naive. I mean, this, this will be, you know, we, we, we were the dominant force in the last century. We'll probably do it again just because we're big, bad America. Well, why not? Well, I mean, it's just, you know, a relationship between, Cato asked an interesting question a second ago. Um, are we sure we have the right form of government? There is no better form of government than a benevolent dictator. I mean, if a dictator genuinely, sincerely appreciates and considers the interests of its people, it is mutually beneficial. He gets to say, dictator, the people are well taken care of. They're, they're well governed. Whatever the philosophy may be or ideology may be. But when we believe the government does not genuinely interest or represent, why did Bernie Sanders, why is Bernie, why does anybody still care what Bernie Sanders says? Because Democrats don't believe their mainstream party cares much for the interests of their voters. Why is Donald Trump still a prohibitive political force? Because the rank-and-file Republican still doesn't trust Lindsey Graham. They still don't trust, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell. So, so it, I mean, you call them extremes. They're not extremes. It's an element within the electorate that don't believe this relationship is been mutually beneficial at all. That's why Bernie Sanders and AOC has such a huge following. That's why Trump and Rand Paul have become somewhat of rock stars on the other side of the political spectrum. But this, you know, the American people are convinced this is no longer a mutually beneficial relationship. And, and this is what happens. Upheaval um, is created and chaos ensues. And I think Bernie weighed in on the Major League Baseball negotiations Ooh, yesterday. You know, his billionaire owners. Well, I mean, but but a lot to. of people listen to what Bernie says. Oh, well, a no lot doubt. of people pay attention to what Bernie, just like Trump. A lot of, if Trump talks, half the country listen. If Bernie talks, the other half listens. You may not agree with what he says, but you listen and consider what he has to say. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence. Hi, Jeff. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hey, Jeff. All right. Uh, first thing is uh, the founding fathers would just roll over in the graves for what you just said. Uh, and there is no such thing as a benevolent dictator. Uh, there's just a dictator that hasn't come into maturity and become a Vladimir Putin. And to think that all of a sudden two communist countries, and I don't care what you say about Russia, they're communists, uh, are aligning against Western uh, philosophy. They've always been aligned. It's just out of the shadows. They've always been attacking America, China, and Russia. But I will—I called in because you just had an energy expert on. And if anybody sends that guy any money, you're crazy. He said that oil in the United States is profitable at $60 a barrel. It's not. Our majority of our oil plays now are coming from fracking. Jeff, how do you know that? He's a fourth-generation oil industry uh, expert, this, and you—you you, no, no, let, let me finish because no, you said you said it's not profitable. How do you know it's not profitable at sixty dollars a barrel? Rig counts when the oil drops below sixty dollars a barrel. 
don't, don't look. Just, just go back and look. Go back and look at the rig counts when oil goes below $60 a barrel. Look at it when it goes below $80 a barrel. When fracking is an expensive process, and how do I know? This is what I do for a living, Ken. <laughs> I, I, I work in the oil and gas and chemical industries. Okay? You're the so guy in that industry when, that knows. He's the guy that doesn't know. No, I, I'll, I'll just say this. You go look at the rig counts when oil drops below $80 a barrel. Sure, they go down. Okay. Speculative well, investing, hedge fund investing. Hedge funds don't want an 8% return. They want a 30% return. They don't get a 30% return at $60. Which, which is why 30, Russia and Saudi Arabia sure, flooded that's, the market. That's exactly what they did. They, they, gutted, they flooded the market. They, they did that to attack that market because fracking um, isn't like a traditional oil play. It has a boom in the beginning when you, when you drill a well. It produces great. You shove frac sand in it. You shove frac fluid in it. And it produces. But every year, it drops. It's not like a traditional oil well. Correct. So you've got to keep drilling. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that's expensive. And when it gets below $80 a barrel, it's not an efficient or good investment. And so U.S. producers stop. It's got nothing to do with Russia flooding the market. It's got to do with economics. If the price ain't right, they don't do it. But Russia flooding the market is an economic matter. I mean, how do you how do you say that's not economics? When Russia floods the market, they're doing it in, in the nature of economics. Uh, OPEC's the same thing. Sure. Uh, you, you, you're looking at these like they're independent things. Exxon is partners with Russia. Exxon is partners with Saudi Arabia. Royal Shell is partners with Russia. You you know, I hear this that America imports 500,000 barrels a day from Russia. Who do you think is importing that oil? It's a little closer to 700,000 barrels. It's some of the American man- yeah, I mean, some it's, of the American oil companies. It's the oil companies. But they're, 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 the but, I mean, you heard the guy say they're <laughs> importing because they're not able to drill here and secure the rights to drill they here in America. They wouldn't drill and they won't make new frack wells because the price isn't right. It is capitalism. At the end of the day, but but you're talking. But there's two degrees of capitalism there, Jeff. That there there's an oil company that expects an eight percent return, and there's a hedge fund investment investor that that inspects a thirty percent return. And it's sixty dollars a barrel. I've read a lot of this. I'm not in the industry, but I've read a lot about it. Spoken to a lot of people. At sixty bucks a barrel, you can run an oil company and make money. You can't make enough money to give your hedge fund, um, you know, money partner the sort of return he expects. When, where is all our new production coming from? That, this is something that you need to realize. Our oil independence came from fracking. Sure. It didn't come from Anwar. It didn't come from Alaskan oil plays or the Gulf of Mexico. But why didn't it, it come from domestic. Anwar, Jeff? Why didn't it come from Anwar? Because it's too expensive. Because we, how, how do we know? Tested. We've never been allowed to explore what it would cost <laughs> to extract oil from Anwar. Listen, yeah, they, they could only do it for six months a year. Uh, uh, anyway, that's a tangent. I do want to say this, though. Um, <laughs> the price of oil and the price you pay at the pump, do you know how much gasoline and diesel fuel we're exporting, net exporting right now uh, globally? N- N- America's not. Exxon, Shell, whomever is domiciled here may be. <laughs> no, no. The United we don't States have a state-run energy off. sector, uh, Jeff. We have, I mean, the, the private sector runs the energy markets in America. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Ga- Gazprom is a state-owned oil company. Exxon is not. Exxon has shareholders. They invest and expect a return. Yeah, 
the, the point is, when you pay at the pump what you pay, it's got a lot to do with refining capacity and demand for refined products that has nothing to do. It's disconnected from the amount of oil we import. It's disconnected. Okay. Jeff, would when you support that, would you support recertifying of the Keystone Pipeline? Got about thirty seconds. Would no, you say yay no, or nay to the Keystone Pipeline? No, it's it's bad for my business. <laughs> Fair enough. I like an honest guy. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff. Good to hear from you. Hadn't heard from Jeff in a good while. Um, I, I don't know that we're on different sheets of music there. I mean, that, that to me, that was a fairly interesting, um, I don't want to say constructive, because who cares? Um, stimulating debate. There you go. Back in a minute.